Welcome to Lighting the Pipes with Bowman and the BFG, a literary exploration of the world of Sherlock Holmes and the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. BFG, how you doing? Not too bad, Bowman. How goes it? It's good, buddy. It's good. It's the uh, 6th of May, 2017. It's been uh, about three, three and a half weeks or so since we last sat down to do this. How you doing? The BFG abides. That's good. I'm glad you're abiding. I abide well. So what's been going on over there in uh, Kanata? Well... As you know, it's pretty tense hockey season uh, here, and uh, everyone's emotions are, are, are up. Nail-biting. Um, nail-biting, yes, absolutely. But again, it happens like this every year, and I've been known to see the result of it. So I'm somewhat, what's the word, detached than I than I normally am. When you say that um, everybody's emotions are up, is that is it kind of like not safe to go around your mom because she's kind of wild if the Sens don't win? Yeah, she's almost like she avoids like she goes downstairs now whenever the game whenever they start like the game turns into a bad direction because she can't handle it you know in that sense uh, um, in that sense because they're her boys right so I know, she's just uh, a little a little overtly attached there but you know her her heart's in a good place. Well, I don't doubt her heart's in a in a good place as a fan, but you know there there is the argument, isn't there, that says you should stand by your boys regardless of whether they're up or down, and you got to see it through. If anything, a mother does is stand by her boys, right? Well, clearly she doesn't. You say she walks downstairs when things go bad. <laughs> well, I was referring to the more uh, uh, permanent boys that she's stuck with. Oh, you? <laughs> yeah, my dad. <laughs> you, and, you and your dad, right? Okay, cool. Yeah, and you to an extent, I suppose, as well. Mm, kind of, yeah, I guess so. In, in a familial way. <laughs> yes, ex- exactly. She's anyway. not, she's not, yeah, um, I was thinking about the you know the tense hockey season and stuff, and how like you know there's the big thing about how in Canada here we don't we really prefer that the the Canadian teams you know are the ones that make in the Stanley Cup instead of watching every year ending up being two U.S. teams vying for the final uh, round. And it, it does create a tense season in that respect and a little bit of patriotism in that, in, in that way. Mm-hmm. But looking at it, you know, I, I know that like hockey is definitely not a national game of England in any ca- capacity. But what team do you think Sherlock Holmes would root for? Sherlock Holmes. Um... Despite probably thinking yeah, that they're all idiots, most likely. But <laughs> I was going to say, I, I don't think he would. He'd rate hockey very much. In fact, no. it, in fact, that's an interesting point. So far in the series, we haven't really seen Holmes, with the exception of a riding whip, which is questionably sported you, or sporting. You can't really think of a moment where Holmes has mentioned sport, can you? Well, there was that instant, I believe, in. Uh, 
I think it was in the sign of four where one of the I forget the, I forget the, their last name now. Um, the two brothers in the mm-hmm. sign of four. One of them had a bodyguard who was like a who was like a, a who, who was a pugilist, and he recognized That's right, Holmes. A boxer, yeah, because he boxes, doesn't he, for sport? Well done. Uh-huh. Well That's right. Yeah. That's right, exactly. And I think this is what gave uh, uh, Guy Ritchie and Co. the license to to have the idea of of Holmes uh, appearing in pugilist matches. Mm. Well, in terms of team sports and in terms of the NHL, um, Holmes would. This is an interesting question. Let, let's let's flesh this out before we start. So, which NHL team would Sherlock Holmes support? Um, Let's see. Holmes would be drawn to a team with a management system that was uh, <clears throat> geared towards efficiency, not efficiency, not not stupidity. And so, automatically, that takes teams like the Arizona Coyotes and <laughs> the um, what you might call it. Well, yeah, Columbus Blue Jackets. Although they were successful in the regular season, they're managed by a moron. So. Uh, they'd be away. Um, so too would the Florida Panthers, because although I love Dale Talon as GM, um, they don't have a clue what like their the president and CEO has fired a great coach and and he's away now. So, uh, yeah, I'd say the Florida Panthers. I don't think he would be a fan of any of these south of the border teams that don't have any natural snow. I think he would find it anathemic. Yeah, I, I I I agree, and that supports our our, our theory about uh, theory. Sorry, our uh, idea, ideal, or <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's projection on my part, but it definitely is. Yeah, it's that, that Canadian patriotism at its core, right then and there. But I'm I'm not I, even I also, though it's kind of most likely you have uh, Canadian players on American teams shouting back at each other, essentially. But yeah, yeah. But, you know, let, let's continue this on a little bit. So, okay, we'll get rid of the Dallas Stars. We'll get rid of the Anaheim Ducks because although they're doing well now, it's basically a Disney team, and I don't think Holmes would root for a big corporation like that. He'd find something quite suspicious and quite um, totalitarian about that. So I, I can't see him being a fan of the of them. Of course, all these, you know, franchises have got their fingers in pies, but he would probably want efficient management, um respectable public figures so someone who does and shows his team or her team in good light maybe something like um but he but he also might be you know supportive of of some ruffians as well but but ruffians who know what they're doing and not acting out of animal instinct yeah. you know like yeah. kind of like the hockey team of the baker street Irregulars. So, okay, what would be the equivalent? Um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm leaning towards the Calgary Flames. I think Holmes might be a, a Flames fan. Could be, could be. You know, young players, uh, tough, speedy, um, a good, a pretty supportive city around them. They don't seem to be, they don't seem to be reckless, really. They're a good, talented mm-hmm. group of youngsters like the Irregulars. Or, outside shot here, Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't know. Babcock, can you see Babcock uh, sharing a pipe with our friend Holmes? Possibly, possibly. Holmes, or, Holmes, he could, Holmes, he could use Holmes as a good play strat- strategist because Holmes would be able to to 
deduce what the other GM is thinking. He'll just send him over to the GM, and the GM and Holmes will examine the, you know, the uh, the uh, the uh, the rival coach, and just kind of you know see like something about oh like his sleeves are rolled back in some way because <laughs> so that means he's having a bad. Uh, uh, bad uh, time with his wife or whatever, so he's easy to provoke. You know, like he would use Holmes in that capacity, Babcock. He probably would. Um, Holmes could probably also find a good number of uh, weaknesses by looking at a roster. Yes. Oh yeah. He'll just 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 looking at the uh, numbers itself. It's an interesting question. I'm glad you you posed it. I, I'm I'm thinking the Calgary Flames would be a good fit for Holmes, hmm. but a lot of that is just aesthetic feel. Like I don't I can't properly articulate why I think he would be a Flames fan. I mean I'm a Hawks fan, but I don't think he would go for the Blackhawks if he was to start watching hockey today because they're like a huge brand. And while they aren't weren't always, and I had to suffer through the many years of losing and poor ownership under Bill Wirtz, I think that. Um, I think that he, he wouldn't be interested in the Blackhawks, but um, yeah, Calgary Flames feels good to me. Maybe a team like the Minnesota Wild, you know, Minnesota's a great, great side, and although they lost their playoff series, they're a, a very strong um, state team, you know, Minnesota's a good hockey mm-hmm. land, good hockey yeah. land down there. I, I, I pretty much wanted to just to probe your hockey ac- acumen in that scenario, so I think we'll go together with the Calgary Flames as the... Uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, team of choice. Okay, and, cool. And and to think about it on the other on the other end too, who would Watson root for? Hmm, that's that's a, a trickier question. I think Watson would probably do it. The Holmes. old soldier. No, I th- I think I think he'd probably end up cheering for the um, the Flames as well because Holmes would be doing it. Oh, that's true. That's true. This, this is a guy who threw he, this guy who threw a, a petrol bomb through the window in the middle of a crowd because Holmes told him to do it. <laughs> That's true. So I guess then we got for both uh, the flames for both uh, Sherlock Holmes and for uh, Dr. Watson. I think so. I-, I think we've done good work here so far today. You know, we're only 10 minutes in and we've already established, um, maybe not scientifically, but certainly uh, in terms of conversation, we've established which team Holmes would be cheering for. And it surprised me. I didn't think Calgary Flames was going to come off my lips, but there, there it is. You you did you 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 used your your mind and you like you came to the natural deduction elementary that uh, that that was them that's what you did that's fantastic uh, speaking of elementary we are at the penultimate episode of our look through the adventures of Sherlock Holmes we're going to deal with stories seven eight and nine today so after today's episode there will only be three stories left to discuss. An interesting collection and variation of stories, uh, these these three tales. They certainly are. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to thrashing these out with you. Um, j- you know, just, just a, a caveat or I guess a heads up to our listeners that we're going to be going not so much off-piste today, but uh, we're going to be digging into the stories um, with the same detail as always, but we're going to try to have some more questions and answers and free-flowing discussions about what's happening. We're going to move off our script a little bit just to see if we can touch the spirit of some of these tales in in a new way or maybe from a new angle because while we don't feel as though our format is getting stayed, our pipes is working wonderfully for us and it will continue to do so, I do think that these are stories that would benefit uh, just a little bit more focus on maybe the written word and kind of some of the intricacies of characterization particularly. And I, I, I just mm. want to go off into those tangents today with you. So I think that's, that's a really yeah. good idea. I think particularly at 
two of these stories in particular, I think, are are very well written and have a lot of depth and character, and uh, almost almost Dickensian in in in, in a way in, in some in some parts of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just kind of really made the world of Sherlock Holmes that he lives in come alive. And uh, that's a really good idea to look at the text a little more in depth, as opposed to just like basic plot summary discussion, you know, and br- and breakdown. Cool. Well. Um... Why don't we just why don't we just fire into it? The first one that we're going to look at was published in the January uh, 1891 edition of The Strand. So this was basically Christmas reading for the men and women who picked up the edition uh, at the time. And not surprisingly, it carries with it a holiday theme. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's Arthur Conan Doyle's Christmas Carol. Kind of, yeah. The Adventure of the Blue Carbuncle. Um, that's that's the first one we're going to look at. And I, I've got a few modern reviews here from readers um, and kind of what, what, they, what they're thinking of this story. Uh, if, if we consult a couple of the Goodreads threads, average rating for this uh, among contemporary readers is 7 point... Th- sorry, <laughs> that's impossible. 3.78 out of uh, a possible 5 scores. I hmm. don't... I mean, we'll see where we where we fall with this, but uh, a couple of these reviews from the community stood out to me, and I'd um, I'd like to like to share this with you. Um, <clears throat> this from uh, Cora Tea Party Princess, so you might have an idea of what's coming. Five words, perfect length for a pint. Ooh, what a fantastic combination! Sherlock Holmes and Christmas. Who knew he had a heart? I really enjoyed this one. Now, I miss Anthony Boucher at a time like this because Mm. the internet has enabled all kinds of people, uh, no offense to the Tea Party princess, but it has enabled all (laughs) kinds of people to have voices that they think are important. Um, Our voices, of course, Joshua, are important, which is why we do what we do, but... I could have done without that review. It doesn't really. All it does is it shows off the somewhat poetical skills or writing skills of the Tea Party Princess, but it doesn't really kind of get into any kind of discussion of the text whatsoever. Neither does this one, rated by Amina. Not the most interesting Sherlock story, but it demonstrates his powerful observation and deduction abilities. Mm, I disagree with that, but uh, it's just in the sense of where I found this story wasn't really a sense of deduction. This was Holmes following a lead, but the leads were already set in motion and it came to the conclusion that it did. And there was some moments where you saw him interacting with the public and you saw some of his, you know, his blending in kind of thing were working and also to the opposite of him standing standing out against everybody else. But I don't think this was one of those deductive cases at all. Mm. Well, um and maybe Mine this is, is perhaps one thing in one at one thing in the beginning re- regarding the hat, but that's really about it. Mm-hmm. This is maybe unfair of me. I'm 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 here sifting through the Goodreads feed because I find it quite entertaining. Um, uh, however, I'm, I'm it's kind of like going to the the pawn shop and looking for diamonds, right? Like I'm not going yeah. to find necessarily great journalism in here. It is, after all, a, um, a a community of just regular readers like ourselves. But I, I'm amazed at how 
people reading Sherlock Holmes don't have a sense of grammar. You know, people reading ACD stories can't put full stops at the end of their sentences. And periods. Sorry, they call them full stops over here. It's one of the strange things that I've adopted since coming to Scotland a dozen years ago is this um, th this appropriation of the term full stops instead of periods. Full stop. I guess that works because it's a full description of something and and it, and it I think it probably has a lot to do with the the telegraphs most likely. Mm -hmm. Oh, speaking of um, speaking of the, the the punctuation that I'm reading here or not reading as it were, a lot of these reviews have to do not so much with the stories they're being read, but the audio versions of them. I think a lot of people get online and just review a story after they've listened to it. Now, I'm not for a minute questioning or challenging the usefulness of audio texts. I happen to think that there is a lot of scope and purpose to them, but what do you think about like reviewing an audio text? Is it is it as legitimate as 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 um, absorbing the language? I mean, can you get the same the, the same density, the same weight from an audio text as you can a written text? It's a big question. I'm aware of that. Yeah, I don't believe you can, but I can't. I don't have the proper, I guess, scientific understanding of like neuros of neuropsychology you know of comprehension uh to qualify my feeling towards that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think when you read a book and you're holding it in your hand and you're re you're reading something when you read you absorb something in, in difference and when you just listen as listen to it and i have a feeling is that when you're listening to it my personal feeling i have heard one or two audiobooks in, in a sense and I find that like it takes them longer to do a page than it takes for me to read a page. And okay, yeah, I see what you're saying. It's it's more and like I yeah. just you don't get the same kind of uh, to me. I don't notice the same flow of words, or I don't notice some poetical forces like I normally would, because you're more or less waiting for something to happen, something to happen, something to happen, something mm -hmm. to happen. Yeah, no, and there's other, other factors involved too. You might hate the different voices that the narrator puts on and stuff like that. There's there's one um, narration that I heard um, a little bit of on YouTube. Uh, the actor is a British actor, Roy Dotrice, and he he's he's well known of being the man of a thousand voices because he did the audiobooks of the first three uh, Song of Ice and Fire, uh, aka Game of Thrones, by George R. R. Martin. And he employed about a hundred different characters, like you know, at, at, in over a quarter course of pages, and he did the women's voices like, uh, like, like <laughs> it was just kind of like an old man doing like a woman's kind of you know like a young girl's voice or an or or a young woman's voice, like it was just kind of ridiculous, you know. <laughs> well, I, 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 you know, it's a different experience. I'll just tell you that it's a different experience. It is a different experience, and I suppose the the question also comes down to the difference between passiveness and, and, and activeness in your reading, right? Like, is yes. lis is listening to the radio a, a passive activity? Well, yeah, typically, but you can be active in it. I, I just always think that looking at the words, if, if you can, I mean, the learning, the, the visually impaired obviously don't have this choice, and so for them, I'm sure they process language in a very unique and sophisticated way. way, yeah. But yes. for us who have the choice, um, I would always have thought that reading the words is more active than 
like people talk about reading as a passive exercise. I don't see it that way. And maybe because I'm a teacher and I'm trained to look at language in a different way and an English teacher more so. But I don't know. Like I would always think that even if I'm enjoying a podcast or listening to the radio, it's still not quite the same as reading the text, you know? I agree. And I anyway. that it's, it's something very difficult to, to qualify. And yeah, it is. It's maybe a stupid question to bring up at this stage, but uh, I just thought a lot of these Goodreads reviews are coming from audio books. So, you know, when you start talking about the language and like, uh, you know, ACD's writing is just splendid. Like, can you really, can you really get the character of that stuff from an audio text? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe you can, but I, I but I personally feel that I, I, I can appreciate the text and, and this, the nuances a lot better when it comes to the printed page as opposed to the passive listening of it from a, from a radio or, for example, an audio tape. Awesome. Well, look, buddy, uh, I think that's a good place to start. This this was a book that was, you know, a, sorry, a story well received, well received at the time, and still well received today as mm-hmm. you know a Christmas type story. Um, but it, it does have its twists, and I'm going to give you three or four minutes now to uh, to take us through a plot summary. So at your leisure, sir. And I'm all right. Enjoy. So we begin with uh, Sherlock with uh, Sherlock Watson. Um, that's that that's their that that's their shipper name. Uh, just kidding. Go check out the fan fiction. It's amusing to say the least. Uh, a little portmanteau. I came, I, I, I came up there. Came up with serendipitously. Um, so it begins with. Um, uh, Watson paying a visit to Sherlock Holmes, and Sherlock Holmes uh, was just been visited by um, commission, uh, Commissioner Peterson, and uh, Peterson has left off this little this old hat, uh, beat up lo- lo- looking hat at um, uh, with Sherlock Holmes, um, and 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 and, and essentially what, what's happening here is is that Watson and us we observe Holmes examining this hat for all his mi- minute details. Um, the hat also came with a geese, um, <laughs> with, with, with a, a dead geese that Mr. Peterson brought home. The story is, is, is that, um, Peterson is, as a commissioner, he's doing his rounds in, in the neighborhood and he notices this big tall guy walking home with the geese and he's being surrounded by local ruffians in the area, and he's trying. And he doesn't want to pick a fight, and he wants. To, and he's trying to take his geese back home, you know. For and he wants. He doesn't want to pick a fight, and uh, he ends up, tr- you know, trying to run away and and swinging his arms away to get away from them. And he ends up breaking a window, and then of course he flees because he sees the commissioner coming, and he and he leaves the geese and his hat as as he as he runs off. Um. So. So you know, so so the commission, so so the commissioner, he goes to Holmes and he brings Holmes the hat, seeing if seeing what he could do to possibly find it. Meanwhile, Holmes sends uh, the commissioner Peterson back to his place with the, with the geese. So during this time, we have a whole tête-à-tête between Watson and Holmes as they analyze the hat, and Holmes pretty much, in in a very polite kind of kind of fashion, makes the observation of how the the, the 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 lack of deductions that Watson makes about the hat, about how it looks, and that is very well described. But then he shows, and then he mentions to us all the different uh, conclusions that he's come to about him being uh, not happy with his marriage, or you know, feeling that uh, he's come to, he's coming to bad luck. 
all these different telltale signs were told through the through the writing uh, that this, this the, the owner of this hat is is is, is dealing with. Um, at this moment, uh, Commissioner Peterson returns, holding a blue carbuncle in his hand, and this was apparently found in the crop of the geese that he brought home. That uh, that that this poor tall guy uh, Henry Baker uh, left behind, along with his hat. Uh, the blue carbuncle, as we learn, belongs to uh, the Countess Morcar, and it was stolen from her. A man named John Horner, who was a accused as a thief previously, uh, who was a plumber in the household, he was accused of the crime and is now being detained for it. Um, so the blue carbuncle is now in the hands of the uh, is now in the hands of Holmes and the commissionaire. So they, they, so Holmes finds it pretty prudent then. That if the geese, at the, the if the geese, the crop of the geese, um, did hold the uh, was brought over by this individual, that they better find this Henry Baker on the basis that uh, to see how much involved with the crime that he actually is. So Holmes puts an ad out, and uh, Baker, Henry Baker, he shows up for his hat, and he's also come, shows up for his geese. Um, and of course, he has no clue whatsoever about what, what was in the what was in the contents of the animal's crop. I will put a comment here that I did read that apparently geese do not have crops. Did you know that? <laughs> I did. I did not know that. No. A, a crop is kind of like this type of. It's, it's like a throat essentially, uh, down like it's a lower throat within the body before it hits the stomach or something along those lines that a lot of fowl birds have, like ducks and whatnot, um, if I'm not mistaken. But geese apparently do not have a crop, and this is considered one of the big blunders of Arthur Conan Doyle's writing. Hmm. Or big, his research, it, of his it, research at least. So yeah. it, is, it is rated as a proper blunder, is it? Yes, it is, yeah. So say the internets, anyway. Well, I, I'm just... I'm, I'm double-checking through my copy of uh, Klinger's... Um, uh, blah, blah, blah. annotations because I didn't remember seeing anything coming through. But you, you go ahead, keep keep going through, and if I see something, I'll, I'll interject. Okay, very good. Uh, yes, so the so we so we learned from from Henry Baker um, that the geese he purchased uh, from the Alpha Inn, where Holmes and Watson then visit. And the owner there, um, Breckenridge, uh, has a bit of a, an argument with Holmes. Um, Holmes basically being provocative to carry more information when Mr. Breckenridge was not really up to discussing his customers or, or, or his business. And it's through a certain kind of uh, passive-aggressive form of uh, tricking the man into in, into a, into a wager that is able to get the information that he wants uh, that the uh, the geese are are town are town born not from outside the the, the country uh, during this time uh, as they're leaving another man shows up inquiring about the geese and Breckenridge also sends him off as well now this man is Matthew Ryder uh, Matthew Ryder is in fact the um, I guess he's like a hotel attendant uh, in, 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 in the place of residence where the Countess Morcar was, was staying. Pretty much by cornering uh, 
Ryder, Holmes and Watson are able to devise that Ryder, who was uh, working in the hotel with the Countess's maid, uh, Catherine McCormick, they, sorry, Catherine McCormick, my apologies, I'm thinking of someone else entirely, Catherine Cusack, I should say, um, they determine that um, it was actually Ryder and Cusack who who schemed to steal the carbuncle and give it uh, and and frame um, John Horner for the crime. We learn um, that uh, Mr. Ryder is probably someone who could be the candidate for one of those American dumbest America's dumbest criminal <laughs> pro- pro- programs, just on the basis of and I quote the text. I would outsmart the most um, brilliant, brilliant detective in the world by basically uh, using a geese as a way to smuggle a carbuncle. Uh-huh. And, uh, <laughs> we learn essentially that uh, his sister, uh, Miss Oakshot, uh, where the geese came from, uh, <laughs> she, she, he basically spots one that has a black bar on its tail and decides to use that to smuggle the carbuncle by shoving it down its throat, <laughs> knowing that it had a crop. Again, Arthur Conan Doyle's blunder even worse because the narrative is so dependent upon this thing of the of the of the, the goose having a crop and not choking. It on is. The, uh, it is. <clears throat> yes. I found I found some information on that now, and the reason I didn't see it when I was reading is because it it's an appendicized point. But I'm I'm quite happy to fill in some gaps here for you on it. Yeah, we'll take a brief interlude. Well, it's it's not so much an interlude as it is a um, a segue into you know contextualizing what you're what you're telling us. Um, of course, right? A goose has no crop. Miss Mildred Sammons states in a letter to the Chicago Tribune on December twenty sixth, nineteen forty six. After reading the story, she got quite upset, I suppose. Doctor J. Finley Christ, to whom her note was sent for comment, uh, replies. Mildred Salmon's announcement in the line of December 26th that a goose has no crop produced a considerable shock among Sherlock Holmes experts. Consultation of one ornithologist, two zoologists, and three poultry dressers, together with ocular demonstration, made it abundantly clear that the lady is correct. Holmes made an elementary error with which the Baker Street Irregulars should have noted long ago. S. Tupper Bigelow in The Blue Enigma seeked to defend Holmes's knowledge of the geese. He consulted the Encyclopedia Britannica Library Research Service. Quote, We contacted members of the Department of Ornithology at the National at the Natural Museum, History Museum of Chicago. I'm quoting below their comments to this office. We do not know of a goose that has a crop, properly speaking. Many geese have a gullet that distends, but it is not a dilation of the esophagus or esophagus. I just channeled our grandfather there by esophagus mm. before its entrance into the thorax. In other words, it's not a crop, whatever it is. Dr. Ernst Bloomfield Zeisler then enters the fray, taking Holmes aside in the matter. He quoted experts in the poultry department of the Agricultural School of the University of New Hampshire who state, quote, Geese have crops. The crop is simply not as visible as on a turkey, but apparently all barnyard fowl do have them. The Marquis of Donegal, then head of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London and editor of the Sherlock Holmes Journal, asked two more so- sources, the Minister of Agriculture and Fish and Mr. Edward Moult, a practical farmer. The ministry wrote, and so it continues, and the note goes on for another page and a half. Basically, this is this is a debate that still, as I think you intimated um, at the beginning, it still kind of fuels people up. Like, did Conan Doyle make a massive mistake? The ch- chances are... He did. He wasn't thinking that deeply about his research. He's like, yeah, they probably have a crop. Let's go with that. They're geese, after all. So, interesting how that story has sparked generations of, you know, back and forth teeter-tottering. Could, could, 
could, could, could that be the first thing? Could Sherlock Holmes, you know, as he gets more storylines and stuff like that, he's, it's kind of like the modern fandom, you know, like the, the kind of like the, the proto-modern mm. fandom in, in the sense of how people writing in and saying no, no, and the and the Holmes fanboys getting angry that someone would dare say that Arthur Conan Doyle yeah. wrote something incorrect. And, yeah, and, and like you say, like the people writing in thinking, oh, I've got one over Sherlock Holmes, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's yeah. totally like an internet forum right then and there. Like it is. It really is cool. Anyway, right. Fi- finish <laughs> up, pal. Sorry, I just I'm just glad I was able to give you that light. Anyway. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Very illuminating. Uh, absolutely. In in, in in that respect. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So we pretty much did. So the thing is, is though, is that uh, his sisters uh, and her geese. Uh, um, her sister. Um, has many geese, of course, and of course, it would seem kind of you know logical to assume that a lot of geese geese have black markings on their tails and and whatnot. So having one black bar on one tail out of, of a whole bunch of geese, I dare say the chances of having another black mark is very possible. Mm-hmm. So essentially, there was more than one black goose, sorry, of a, a, a goose with a black mark on, on its tail that um, essentially are. Our master criminal, our proto Moriarty here, I guess, uh, <laughs> did not realize this, and um, so what happened is that the the wrong the wrong goose got sold to Henry Baker, and uh, and and the, the and the wild goose chase comes to an end with Holmes realizing that this guy is not uh, any kind of devious criminal mastermind, and decides to spare him from uh, future incarceration and and a, and, and a criminal. Uh, la, la, la livelihood by um, p- pulling a Dickens Christmas Carol and uh, letting him go. Do you think that this is where the expression "wild goose chase" came from? You know, I was going to add that in there at some place, but I, I was, was going to give that to you, and you and you fell into pl- and you fell right in there. So um, it's very possible. I'm curious to, to to investigate that idiom and see exactly where it originated from. Hmm. Interesting. I, I do believe it's possible. It was a wild. It was a wild goose chase, though. That's for sure. It was that. Yeah. Um. Well, the the goose was dead, but I suppose it's still wild, isn't it? Yeah. Or the wild carbuncle chase. The wild, uh, the wild carbuncle chase. Yeah. It, it doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? It it doesn't. No. But um, overall, Josh. I I mean, what do you think? Do you like this story? Yeah, I thought it was pretty entertaining, and it was a nice to see more of the human side of Sherlock Holmes and. It was fun, and I enjoyed the characters that we encountered through the way. I loved Breckenridge, the uh, the uh, the uh, inn owner. He was great. Yeah, he was. No, he's not the inn owner. He's he wasn't the inn owner. He was the uh, the Covent Garden poulterer. The Covent Garden poulterer. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I missed. Uh, there's one thing I missed in my outline. There was I missed uh, the Alpha Inn leading to the Covent Garden owner. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that, that's op- operator. That'll yeah. be that'll be fleshed out in the wash. Don't worry. Exactly. That, that that that's good. Just, just don't put any colors with the wash. Uh, no, of course not. Not not a white not a white load anyway. And not a white load. No. All right. So you want to light these pipes and uh, get talking about this one? Yes, sir. All right. Well, um, I think it's only fitting that we we light a Christmas flavored pipe. What do you think? Okay. So what? Uh, mistletoe. Mistletoe. Um, I don't know. Is gin flavor? It's funny because thinking back to the episode where we talked about snuff and all the different flavors that you were you, you know you could get of snuff, 
Um, I'm trying to think of one that might suit a Christmassy tale like this so that the tobacco is, is flavored. Uh, keep keep thinking. Gin, ginger, maybe ginger. Ginger, yeah. Uh, ginger's a good one. Um, i trying to think of something else that would convey. How about turkey-flavored? Uh, <laughs> turkey-flavored. Or, or, or geese-flavored in this case. Now we'll just light these up and get ready to talk. So the acronym PIPES, BFG, go through it. PIPES, P for principles. That's our man, That that's our boys, Sherlock and Watson. I, investigation, the story, that how the case, um, how, how the case is laid out before us, the actual examination of the writing of the story it, it, it itself the nuances the metaphors the symbols the the power of the text the um, entertainment value of the text then we have P for perpetrators so the villains of the piece <laughs> quote unquote in this case uh, E. And then, of course, we have E, the environment. Uh, we're talking about the environs of London uh, or outside, in, in this case, just how the atmosphere of these places, of these locales, what they bring to the story uh, and, how, and how well they're described in, in terms of bringing the story. And finally, we have the supporting cast. So the, the, uh, so the witnesses, the, the suspects, the, 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 you know, and the regular characters that uh, populate Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson's world. As you said uh, in your plot summary, this isn't really... Oh, no, I'm sorry. As you said uh, towards the beginning when we were looking at the reviews, this isn't really a great example of Holmes being... Outside of his work with the hat at the beginning, really being terribly deductive. They, they just kind of do good detective work here. They follow leads mm -hmm. and they end up in the right places. Like There's nothing phenomenal about it. And he doesn't really discover anything because he's dependent, isn't he, Holmes, on, uh, or sorry, the plot is dependent on the commissioner coming back in saying, holy shit, look what my wife found in the guts, right? Yeah, it's kind of one of those, like, Ruby Goldberg kind of mach uh, machines, you know, those cartoons of where someone puts, like, a marble, uh, say, for example, you want to you, you want to water a plant and so you put a marble on like a chute and the marble goes down the chute and then it then it goes into like some sort of like whirly gig and then spins around and yeah, then yeah. triggers some 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 dominoes and then the dominoes fall over and that domino triggers a switch and the string tied to a boot swings in the air and then kicks the uh, <laughs> and kicks the uh, water uh, uh, pitcher over and so it so waters the plant mm. and 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 I do wonder if Conan Doyle knew going into this story how he had structured it and, and kind of what he wanted out of it. If oh, it I have no doubt. If it was going to be a tic-tac-toe kind of mousetrappy game like that, then in this case, he layers at the start of the story uh, a lot of about Holmes and how clever he is, maybe because there's not a lot of the actual cleverness that comes through later on. And that might be a theme we discuss here in this story, in, in, in this episode, that Holmes maybe isn't isn't quite as clever in these three tales as he has been in the past. But I'm just going to start, if uh, you'll indulge me, by looking a little bit here at how Holmes is characterized at the start of the story. 
Watson has rocked up and Holmes has got this hat <clears throat> and the conversation, as we've seen before, um, progresses fairly predictably. Uh, I, yes. can see, I can see nothing, said I, handing it back to my friend. On the contrary, Watson, you can see everything. You fail, however, to reason from what you see. You're too timid in drawing your inferences. Then pray, tell me what it is that you can infer from this hat. He picked, <laughs> he picked it up and gazed at it in the peculiar introspective fashion, which was characteristic of him. It's perhaps less suggestive than it might have been, he remarked, and yet there are a few inferences which are very distinct, and a few others which represent at least a strong balance of probability. That the man was highly intellectual is, of course, obvious upon the face of it, because he has a big head. Like, I never liked that. I don't understand that, but whatever. Although... I, that just, uh, that has something to do with... Um, there's some field of science that was that was very popular at the time that Phrenology. was also very racist, actually, yeah. about how the size of like, of, of, of some of people's heads was uh, determined uh, brain capacity and whatnot. I know. Um, I guess that... Phrenology? Was... Is it phrenology, I think it is? Or... Yeah, that, that's what I thought it was. I might be wrong, but um, anyway... Uh, yeah, so Mr. Burns liked that method of uh, uh, use like these big calipers on someone's skull, and you measure like how big their skull is, or something along those lines. Well, I think the theory still has its supporters. Certainly, in the war, uh, the Second World War, it did. I, I, I had the opportunity to visit Sachsenhausen uh, labor and um, concentration camp in Germany, just outside of Berlin, a few years ago. And while I was there. Uh, they had preserved quite a few of the boards and um, medical research that were going on there that the Nazis had undertaken, and phrenology was part of it. You know, the, the measurement of skulls and hair and eyes and, you know, symmetry and all that stuff. Anyway, sorry, uh, right, so we were talking about Holmes. Uh, da, 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 yeah, that the man was highly intellectual is, of course, obvious upon the face of it, and also that he was fairly well-to-do within the last three years, although he has now fallen upon evil days. He had foresight, but has less now than formerly, pointing to a moral retrogression, which, when taken with the decline of his fortunes, seems to indicate some evil influence, probably drink, at work upon him. This may account also for the obvious fact that his wife has ceased to love him. And that's another thing, too. Just because his hat's dirty doesn't mean his, his wife doesn't love him. Maybe she's just lazy. Maybe she doesn't yeah. want to. Cl maybe she doesn't. Maybe she's modern. Maybe she doesn't want to pick up after her husband and tidy all of his things. You know, there's, maybe there's... she wants him to to notice how shitty it is, and, and you know, like <laughs> man up. I think that's just an example of Sherlock Holmes being a little bit too focused on his deductions and not putting into effect the the, the myriad of of, uh, of uh, intricacies of human relationships. Perhaps. It is funny, though, that at this stage in the stories, um, there's almost always a moment like this where Holmes has a quiet, uh, I wouldn't call it a soliloquy, but it's kind of like a monologue about how clever he is, right? And he, he does this at least in one or on one facet of the investigation, he will show off these types of deductive skills. And it's almost like the readers need it now. Like, that's the formula, right? Yes, it is the formula, indeed. Anyway, that's that's just a bit. I mean, it goes on. He, he has another uh, verse or two of that. But, um, yeah, he deduces all kinds of things from that hat, several of which are right and several of which are just biased, bigoted commentary, I guess, from the writer. But anyway, um, I, I liked Holmes in this story, although I found him more humorous than he was useful. Um, he wasn't much more than a police detective, really. He, yes. he needed the commissioners step up with the carbuncle when it was discovered in the goose. And from there, he went from A to B to C. He did good work on those steps. Watson just basically trundled along with him, did very little yes. at all. Uh, I did think that the 
principles were good, but there was nothing really stand out for me. I liked the turn at the end where Holmes had the power of this man's future in his hands and he decided it wasn't right to punish him when he was in possession of the jewel. This guy was awfully contrite. A young man broke down like a teenager would when he was forced to acknowledge, you know, the seriousness of his behavior. And yes. all things considered, uh, James Ryder uh, is going to have... James Ryder, sorry, not Matthew Ryder. He's going to have a better life because of what happened to him. And John Horner is going to be released because there's no evidence against him. So I went uh, I went for a three on my principles here. They, it was it was fine. Nothing spectacular, just, just fine. I went for, uh, I think on the basis of the, the ship of Holmes' uh, charity... And uh, and the encounter and Holmes, you know, just being very astute and being on the top of his game, game, but really not having to show those 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 deductive skills in a strong way, minus the whole episode with the hat. Uh, I did enjoy his um, talk with uh, Breckenridge. Oh, I thought that was great. Uh, I, I thought that was phenomenal. I, I loved I loved all those moments, but I didn't love them for Holmes so much as I did. Well, I did actually because he did pull that good gamble over Breckenridge, and that was cool. But uh, yeah, yeah, no, no, maybe, that, maybe maybe a three is a little bit harsh. You know, he maybe. But I'm sorry, sorry. You go ahead. No, no. I I see where you're I see where you're coming from, but um, I found that exchange really amusing, and I liked seeing kind of Sherlock Holmes, the detective. You know. More so than just the calculating machine, and that, that's uh, a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah, like this, this is, someone this is a good have... example. This is a good example of a story that would give readers less of the uh, computer homes and more of the man. Exactly, and especially at the end. So yeah, and I, I do agree that Watson's kind of just being there doesn't really add much to that score in that sense. So I feel that. Um, because of the, of the change at the end and because of that exchange with Breckenridge, um, which, which I'll go over, actually, I think, because it's just an amusing little episode, the, uh, the, the conversation. So they show up at Covent Gardens here uh, for, and speak to Breckenridge about the geese. Good evening. It's a cold night, said Holmes. The salesman nodded and shot a questioning glance at my companion. Sold out geese, I see, continued Holmes, pointing at the bare slabs of marble. Let you have 500 tomorrow morning. That's no good. Well, there well, there are some on the stall with the gas flare. Ah, but I was recommended to you. Who by? The landlord of the Alpha. Oh, yes. I sent him a couple of dozen. Fine birds they were, too. Now, where did you get them from? To my surprise, the question provoked a burst of anger from the salesman. Now then, mister, said he, with his head cocked and his arms akimbo, what are you driving at? Let's have a straight now. It is straight enough. I should like to know who sold you the geese which you supplied to the Alpha. Well then, I shan't tell you. So now. Oh, it is a matter of no importance, but I don't know why you should be so warm over such a trifle. Warm? You'd be as warm, maybe, if you were as pestered as I am. When I pay good money for a good article, there should be an end of business. But it's where, where are these geese, and who did you sell these geese to? And what will you take for, take for the geese? One would think they were the only geese in the world to hear the fuss that is made over them. Well, I have no connection with any other people who have been making inquiries, said Holmes carelessly. If you want to tell us the bed is off, that is all. But I'm always ready to back my opinion on a matter of fowls, and I have a fiver on it that the bird I ate is country bread. Well, then, you've lost your fiver for its town bread, snapped the salesman. 
It's nothing of the kind. I say it is. I don't believe it. Do you think you know more about fowls than I, who have handled them ever since I was a nipper? I tell you, all those birds that went to the Alpha were town-bred. You'll never persuade me to believe that. Will you bet, then? It's merely taking your money, for I know that I am right. But I'll have a sovereign on with you, just to teach you not to be obstinate. The salesman chuckled grimly. Bring me the books, Bill, said he. The small boy brought round a small, thin volume and a great, greasy-backed one, laying them out together beneath the hanging lamp. Now then, Mr. Cocksure, said the salesman, I thought that I was out of geese, but before I finish, you'll find that there is still one left in, the sh in my shop. You see this little book? Well, that's a list of folk from whom I buy. Do you see? Well then, here on this page are the country folk, and the numbers after their names are the where their counts are in the big ledger. Now then, you see this other page in red ink? Well, that is a list of my own town suppliers. Now look at the third name. Just read out to me. Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road, 249, read Holmes. Quite so. Now turn that up in the ledger. Holmes turned to the page indicated. Here you are. Mrs. Oakshot, 117 Brixton Road, Egg and Poultry Supplier. Now then, what's the last entry? December 22nd, 24 geese at 7 shillings. 6D? I don't know what 6D is. Okay, I'll, I'll fill that in afterwards. Keep going. Quite so. There you are. And underneath, sold to Mr. Windigate of the Alpha at Twelves. What do you have to say now? Sherlock Holmes looked deeply chagrined. He drew a sovereign from his pocket and threw it down upon the slab, turning away with the air of a man whose disgust is too deep for words. A few yards off, he stopped under a lamppost and laughed in a hearty, noiseless fashion, which was peculiar to him. Uh, that's this example funny. of Holmes, be Holmes being an asshole. Yeah, but I liked it. I'm really glad you read that out oh, it was, um, because it, 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 it did suit. It was a good exchange. And I thought that um, – well, D, by the way, is dimes, shillings and dimes. But oh, I thought, okay. I thought it would be cool. Um, I've got a little note here. <clears throat> I want to get through this story rather swiftly so we can move on. But I, I just mm -hmm. want to read you this bit. In, uh, in my annotations, uh, it's observed that in terms of the sovereign, the value of a sovereign, because that's what he puts down for the bet, right? Yes. Um, he says that, um, uh, yeah, Holmes, who had no client to cover his expenses, must have been financially solvent enough at this time to spend a sovereign, which was a pound at the time, almost twice what Watson earned daily at 11 shilling and six dimes per day as a soldier. So this is quite a, quite a, ma a wager he's putting down. Indeed. And so I wonder if, and we didn't talk about this, but I wonder, does he keep the thousand pound reward for himself? Well, I like as he said in one of the other stories, he said that uh, the case is his, the investigation is is the is is his reward, right? And you can reward, compensate yeah. me. You can compensate me for whatever things, whatever expenses that I have during the case of the investigation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair enough. He's almost he's almost like pro bono because he's bored. That's essentially what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, I mean, he's, he doesn't need the money, I guess, but it's cool. Anyway, right. Um, yeah, so, okay, what did you go for? What was your number? You, you've convinced me, Josh. I'm going 3.5 now at the principles on the strength of Holmes and the way he just barters with people and, and chats his way around London. Uh, what would you what'd you go for then? I went for four. You went for four. Uh, in terms of the investigation, although, although in my mind there's not a lot of investigation like we are used to seeing with Holmes, you know, putting together these really obscure links and, and you know, making the puzzle clear. 
He just does detective work. I really liked the way the story was written. I found it quite engaging to be potting about in these different parts of London and, and to, yes. be getting, to be getting not just a bit of exposition about the frost on the windows and Christmas time and, and uh, you know, all the, the Covent Garden uh, <clears throat> stalls with the, the, the vegetables and the meat and all this stuff. I thought that was really quite evocative and I like the conversations. You do see Holmes and Watson working in kind of different ways just talking to regular folk and getting out around and i thought that the story was clever like i did think this is an immature a crime but i also feel like it is kind of believable and i i read i read this a little differently i think than you i didn't see so much that he was trying to smuggle the gem in the goose what i saw is that you know he's he's walking around the city with a hot a hot gem he basically wants to find a way to transport it more safely so he uses the goose to to do that you know but well smuggling wouldn't that be smuggling i guess so i i suppose i'm thinking like smuggling in the, strict, in the, in the strictest yes. term not more so yeah. in the much more uh yeah. complicitly cr- cr- criminal term yes i think you're correct you you would be literally correct i guess because i, I guess i mean to, to my mind james Ryder doesn't know what he's going to do with this gem how's he going to make any money out of it everybody knows it's stolen like is he is he just going to steal it and return it yeah, that's or, that's or is true. he gonna is he gonna get that is he gonna get that seedy friend of his to go do that? Because I mean, if he, an employee of the hotel, returns it to the woman who was in the hotel, he, is he gonna be suspected? He probably. Yeah, and it makes you wonder too. Like, what he uh, he obviously felt guilt about Horner too, and what he's gonna and, and why Horner's gonna take the fall for him. So obviously, it's possible that there could be moments where he doesn't know what to do with the gem as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the the moral breakdown at the end and the way Holmes treated him, I did like the way the story wrapped up. I thought it was a suitable little holiday yarn. Um, I enjoyed reading it. And that's part of our investigation, Mark, remember, is kind of the aesthetic yes. and, and how the style works. I enjoyed the story. I thought it was refreshing given what we had in the last three. Uh, a little a little easier to digest, if you pardon the pun. And uh, I went I went for a four, solid four on this one. I did. I did. I did. As, I did as well, Scott. I found that uh, it, while the mystery wasn't uh, as as intricate as previous ones that we dealt with, uh, and where the nuances weren't really left there for us, that they were more just for us to kind of follow on the wild goose chase, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very enjoyable and amusing, and, it, and there was a great there was sentiment to the story, and I just you know for a Christmas time um, themed story, uh, it it carried that off beautifully and uh like we said the investigation and the narrative are really the same thing when it comes to our grading and i feel like you that the um the investigation um was was a good old yarn it was entertaining and uh i think as a whole that's all that matters so four for me cool um in terms of the perpetrator well james Ryder (laughs) and um uh, what's James her name? Ryder, yes. Yeah, James Ryder and Catherine Cusack, the two of them working together here. Uh, this is interesting, too, because although he is technically the, the perpetrator, and so, too, is Catherine, although we, she has no role in the story beyond a name dropped in a sentence, yeah. she... <clears throat> sorry. Um, th- there's, not, there's not really a lot given to them, what they're going to do together, uh, why they are no. working together, what what's their story. And so... I took a bit of creative license and in imagining how, you know, Catherine and James would have maybe had a drink late at night after the Countess had gone to bed down in the bar of the hotel talking about this. And, oh, by the way, you know, my mistress, my lady has got 
the countess has got this beautiful gem and we could we could get a you know if we stage a theft maybe we can get some reward money for it and blah 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 i thought hey that kind of reminds me of something that i remember seeing when i was a younger guy and thematically i think it fits quite nicely so i hope you enjoy um we're going to listen now to Romancing the Stone by Alan Silvestri and dedicate this to uh, Mm. James Ryder and Catherine Cusack on their potential romance over the blue carbuncle. Mm. Perhaps this music is a little bit too lighthearted for the gravity of the story, but it's not really that deep a story. Hmm. I now picture kind of like an alternative view of the storyline of of uh, Catherine being ill-treated by the Countess Morcar and wanting to get back <laughs> at that bitch, and then you and then seducing uh, uh, Ryder there to uh, go along with her. Yeah, and of course Ryder's wearing a fedora and sliding through the mud. Yeah, and Ryder also resembles Michael Douglas, and uh, <laughs> Kathleen Cusack or re- 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 uh, uh, resembles uh, Kathleen Turner. All right, so I admit, Romancing the Stone, um, the title worked for me, but there is room to believe a romance between these two perpetrators, and why not have <laughs> so, why not have some fun in the spirit of the times? So if yeah, anything, they- if, if anything, the story could have ended up being like almost like a Coen Brothers movie or something like that. <laughs> I could have, yeah. Well, look. Um, <laughs> In terms of the perpetrators, yeah, he he was cool, she was cool, but I went 2.5 because they were just middling, really. And they, there, there wasn't enough development of the character beyond their immaturity, or his, particularly. I think th- I went with three, okay. but I agree with everything that you said. But I just kind of liked, uh, I found him an, a, a refreshing type of villain. And uh, he had a pretty good arc, I think, as, as, as a perpetrator. And uh, it was it was it was it was different from what we had before, so I, I appreciated that. So I gave it a full three. All right, cool. Now the environs is an interesting one for me. Um, I scored this once. I went back. I scored it twice, and then I thought about it again this morning before we met online. And mm. I stay. I'm, I'm staying true 
I, I can't change my score on this, and I, I don't really know I can properly explain it. But I went, okay, first of all, I'll tell you, I went 4.5 on the environs of this story. And I think it's because I've been to some of the places in London that were cited here. I know how these pubs feel, you know, when, when, when they're described with the swinging doors and stuff. I like that. I love the Covent Garden scene. I thought that was phenomenal. Um, not because it was so brilliantly rendered, just because it was properly still. It is properly still what Covent Garden's like. I mean, you can still find... Um, you know, butchers, and you can still find polterers and things like that in and around the area. And of course, now it's it's more modern. You can also buy your laptop computers and stuff there too. But there is that real sense of it's just a sense of kind of a community market about that big important place in London. I love that Holmes is out there. I like the winter streets. I felt like this was a a good, really deliberate rendering of London in December and. Like I said, I, I reflected on this a couple of times because I wasn't sure why the point five was there, but I'm putting that point five in there just for feeling because I think I was ready for a story that gave me more of the streets like I had seen in an earlier look. Uh, sorry, in one of the earlier texts. I don't remember which one it was. Uh, Might have been a study in Scarlet. I really enjoyed that. But anyway, or a sign of a sign of four. Sign for of sure. four. Yeah, one of them. But I went four point five, and I I know that's high compared to what I've given in the past. But I felt for this story, the environment really worked for me. Yeah, environment was the strongest part of the story. I think it really helped with the, the atmosphere. Um, we, you know, if you put the comic nature of the tale aside, and environment was a big factor in in uh, in this, and it gave me the it gave me to come to the conclusion of the exact same score you had, four point okay. five. Wow, okay. uh, just just the atmosphere and, and the, the description of Covent Gardens, of the streets of London in the winter time. Um, even this home's apartment, uh, everything just seemed to connect beautifully, like in a rendered world, you know, in your mind. And and Arthur Conan Doyle's writing did that, like it, it captured it so much in that way that even though I haven't been to places you've been to, I could easily visualize it. Mm-hmm. And that to me was a was uh, you know that that brought the score to the top there, well near the top I guess in this case. So the London, so London is definitely a character in particularly Christmas time London in this story. And uh, it might be actually like the protagonist of this story, if you think about it, because it's the atmosphere of London at Christmas time that makes Holmes comes to the conclusion uh, that he does at the end of the tale, which also decides uh, the end of uh, writer's arc as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, so also got to see, we also got to see Oakshot's backyard and the home she stayed in and all Oakshot, that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know? yeah. Um, uh, another amusing scene was, was Ryder recounting the story of him and uh, and his sister discussing the geese, and he's like, "I don't want this geese. Um, I want that. I want that other geese." She's like, and she's like, "Okay, well, she's she kind of like confused as to why he is the way that he is." And but uh, this geese, we, we we made it big for you, and so it'd be a have extra meat in it. Like we did this for you, and you want this <laughs> this other thin, thin geese? Like I would be really pissed off if this was my little brother that I was kind of like that was dependent upon me, and you know, or uh, mooching off of me in that way. Yeah, and he says to Holmes and Watson at the or towards the end, he said, um, uh, "My sister thinks that I'm going mad. Sometimes I think that I am myself." <laughs> I just like the notion of just Holmes like tapping and like impa- like he's getting annoyed by the end of this conversation, how like incompetent <laughs> and, and, yeah. and how he, he just realizes that he has not netted, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, he's like a, uh, a schoolmaster just dealing with this petulant kid who's now turned to he's trying the strategy of, of putting the tears on right 
Yeah, I liked how he instead of like just telling him like just 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 like go politely, he just like get out and just like you know and and scares them. Probably, probably alarm Watson, and then, but then but then he goes back to smoking his pipe. You know, yeah, you know what? I think I did I did him a favor. He did well. Cool. We see eye to eye on that one. In terms of uh, supporting players uh, to finish off our pipes on the blue carbuncle, I went three and a half. And although there aren't really a lot of them here, John Horner, we don't know anything about him. He's just this poor plumber who goes into the uh, Countess's room to solder up uh, a vent or something like that and ends up getting framed for this. We've got um, the other girl, Catherine Cusack, by name only. Um, mm. Again, doesn't do. I'm sure there's something in these names, you know, that Conan Doyle was picking out. Of, he wasn't just picking them out of the air. He was. He was. There's a reason that his villains are Ryder and Cusack, and I'm. I'm just. I. I would like to know, what um, you know, the reasons were for him choosing these names. But anyway, um, he's fans of Winona Ryder and John Cusack. Maybe. <laughs> I doubt. Somehow, I doubt that. But Breckenridge gets all the uh, 3.5 here. Uh, I'd like to give more to the players than that because I think on his own he's deserving of more. This is a character that I would like to follow in like a spin-off or something, but the truth is you can't do that. Like I, I couldn't at least bring myself to give more than 3.5 to the secondary players when there's only him in it, really. Yeah, I would add it. I mean, there's Peterson as well, and uh, he seems yeah, like Peterson's kind of... Peterson's okay. He is cool. You're right. Peterson is cool, the commissioner, but um, he, he's all... Like his role is just I'm giving you a hat and holy shit I found a gem like there's really nothing more to him there. <laughs> true, true. Uh, but I also I also got a got a, I got a good view of Miss Oakshot, uh, Ryder's sister in in that okay, uh, okay. Pre- in that presentation as well. So I, I don't know. I just found it was a very colorful cast in this one. Mm-hmm. Not like in terms of detail, but I, I guess yeah, they are characters. You're right. They are characters. Yeah. It was, like I said, it's very Dickensian, this particular story. It is. You're right, it is. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, so, I'm going to stick. I'm going to stick to 3-5, but I, I totally see where you're going. Yeah, I, I stay with, I, I, I'm going to stay with my 4. Okay, cool. That brings your score then, Josh, to a uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 9, 19.5 for the Blue Carbuncle for you. And I'm on 8, uh, 10, 5, 14, and I'm on 18. All right. So on to the adventure of the Speckled Band. Indeed. Uh, I'm going to go get myself a bevy, and you take us through the plot summary. All right. What's a bevy? Beverage. Ah, okay. Your UK terms, I'm just trying to uh, tra- translate them. I need a, uh, a footnote sometimes. Sorry, buddy. Uh, yeah, the vernacular surprises me sometimes, too, how um, it's just kind of... Absently, it appears. You know, like I haven't. Uh, I don't like that really. That I've, I've, I'm picking up all these other terms that I don't particularly. I'm not conscious of it. You know what I mean? But anyway, yeah. yeah. You live. It's, you live in a place a dozen years. You're gonna pick up some of the language, man. Oh, absolutely. And I also, I also, I also pause at that uh, bevy term because I believe that that is a term of endearment that you give to your mother sometimes. So. Mm. No, she hates it. Oh, I know, but you consider it a term of endearment because it, you you probably do do it to get her goat, most likely. Mm-hmm. Ah. Eh. Speaking of goats, the speckled band. The speckled band. Oh, sorry, well, that we don't was have much, much as goat. We don't have goats so much as we have baboons and cheetahs and snakes. All right, take us through it, buddy. And gypsies, those gypsies. So, this is a tale. Um, that Watson recounts uh, that takes place earlier 
I guess, in his time living with Holmes. So in this instance, he is not living with uh, with Sherlock Holmes. Um, sorry, in this time period, he is actually, this is when he was living with Sherlock Holmes before the sign of four and his uh, nuptials with uh, Mrs. Morstan. Miss Morstan, I should say. Um, Holmes and Watson are sh- shooting the bull and... A young uh, a young woman arrives in her thirties, not 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 old, but 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 you know youngish, but definitely someone who's looked like she's a lot older than she is due to her circumstances. Uh, this is a Helen Stoner, and she has come to report of, of of her situation, and she comes early, early, early in the morning, and of course this prompts uh, her to knock on the doors of of two two one B Baker Street, awake wake Miss Miss Hudson, and then wake who wakes Sherlock Holmes, who then wakes Watson, um, who is living of course in the apartment at this time. So Mrs. Stoner has a pretty <laughs> effed up tale of woe to say the least. Is it? Is it really that effed up? It's, I mean. Well, I mean, I never had, I, to me, I, I would say in the category of your sister dying in a, in a room with these creepy last words and weird sounds occurring and living in a, in a scary house with your very angry and also probably frightening demeanor stepfather, I would say that's that's kind of an effed up situation. I think what she's left with is pretty screwed up, but she doesn't know what's caused it and so it's still no a she bit doesn't of a know what's caused it mm-hmm. but she's definitely scared of something and that's still a pretty effed up situation even before i mean <clears throat> just to go into i guess the uh, what she's talking about is that um she lives uh she is the stepdaughter um to the heir of uh stoke moran which is uh in surrey and this is this is one of the oldest Saxon families in England, um, which has gone into ill repute after many years of 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 uh, vice and gambling debts and leaving the sole heir a Grimesby Rylot, force, forcing himself to become enter the medical profession to keep his estate, and in, in, in which he's able to uh, get a position as a doctor in Calcutta. It is in Calcutta where he meets um, Helen, her sister, and of course Helen's mother, who was the widow of a officer. Uh, they marry, and of course Rylot becomes her stepfather. Her stepfather. Now, during his time in India, Rylot uh, is charged with a capital crime. Apparently, because of some th- robberies that were going on in his household, uh, he, he that were that his servant was unable to stop, or he perhaps suspected of, is not quite told to us. Uh, he gets charged with beating this man to death, and uh, he manages to not get a capital crime, and he ends up having to go back to England, a very, as the text says, a very disappointed man, and an angry man still, of course. So already we got, we got kind of our hackles up on this uh, Dr. Rylot here. Old heir to a decaying house, angry, violent. This is not looking good in terms of his uh, moral redemption, is it? No, no, it isn't. And one of the things I, I admired about this investigation, and um, 
I mean, as you're saying, she's telling the story here, so I don't feel as though I'm jumping too far ahead. But one of the things I liked about this is that her story is so blatantly anti-Roylot, like anti-father-in-law, that I wondered more than once if this was a bluff, if she was in there to bluff with, like, if they were working for some reason to try to get something out of Sherlock Holmes, because I could not see how... Conan Doyle would give me such a clear presentation of a bad guy right at the beginning. Like, this is definitely the guy you've got to watch out for. This is the guy who's going to try something. He's behind the murders. He's the one who has all the motivation to keep the money from her inheritance. He's the one who's going to do it. Help me, Sherlock. Help me, Sherlock. Like, it all sounded a little bit desperate to me. That You're I was, my only hope. Yeah, I was wondering if there was a bluff going on here. But no, it turns out this guy's just a total dick. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm wondering if that kind of do, has to do with the comparison of you know modern audiences to audiences back then. The way that he was described, it kind of seems like basically uh, Conan Doyle is setting up almost like you know like a penny dreadful, a uh, a gothic little gothic horror story here, and the reader would know about it at the time that okay, so this guy is always going to be a t- the villain of the story, right? And they just wanted yeah. to see where the story went and where this girl get caught up in this tale of gothic horror, you know? Mm-hmm. And then compare it, you know, to modern audiences where we're very used to being given red herrings, you know, in in this kind of respect. So does our conclusions in that, in, when we're reading the story, does that come from the from the writing itself or does it come from our previous experiences and our, you know, our, our knowledge of tropes and, and whatnot? I wonder, particularly given, mm, oh, well, sorry, I'm, thinking two things at once yeah i'm I'm actually not sure i'm not sure i've got one mind of it but because you and i are reading these stories kind of sequentially this way i I don't know i can answer that clearly you know (laughs) no of course no it's 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 it's, uh it's something to uh mull mull about the mind you know right anyway Um, so moving forward uh so as it turns out uh she has lost her sister um who they were pretty much like they were twins and they they were, were pretty much together their whole life when they return to England, um, just going back f- further, uh, she she recounts that when they return to England after her father's uh, was released from incarceration in, in India and then returned back to, to, to the estates at Stoke Moran, um, their mother dies in a tragic train accident. And I couldn't pick up any nuances as to how that came about. Was Neither she pushed I. in front of a train? You know, like, did the train crash? You know, in that kind of sense. Like, I was, I, I was wondering if there was a hint there that Rylod might have something to do with it as well. Like, did he, you know, p- 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 did like did like does he push her on the trains? How under the train house of cards style? Like, who knows, right? I think we could read back and maybe read more into it now that we know about him and what he was willing to go to. The I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Although with him, it's it's more like he would have like uh, he would set a rhinoceros to hit the train or something like that. True. And Spider-Man comes and saves him. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> just moving forward. Um, Please. Yeah. <laughs> so she ends up in a terrible train accident. And, of course, the only heirs left to the to her wealth is, in fact, uh, is her two daughters. And so eventually her sister, um, her and her sister, they, they, they live in the house, in, 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 the, in the part of the household, which is pretty much collapsed into ruin. And this one whole wing of the house is still standing where, where, where people um, sleep. And the rooms are all connected in a certain way. Now, this is, of course, very important to the narrative. But 
just kind of getting to to to, to the to, to the nitty gritty of things, the sister, um, she ends up dying um, immediately after being being but betrothed, and of course. Um, the sister, uh, Mrs. Uh, Helen Stoner, I should say, uh, is witness to her death when she hears in the middle of the night some sort of whistle um, that she kind of suspects that might have something to do with the gypsies that live on the estate grounds of Stoke Moran. Oh, just to give you a picture of Stoke Moran, that, that the, uh, that the, uh, the, the country estate of the, of the uh, Rylot family that um, Dr. Rylot is the sole, I guess, heir of, he, it is, a, as, I, as I said, it's a dilapidated situation. Part of the house is falling apart. Um, you can get onto the grounds in easy ways. There is a cheetah and a baboon um, walking around there, you know, gallivanting um, everywhere you go. So beware of the cheetah. Uh <laughs> as well <laughs> that's that's stupid like i'm sorry man like i i know you're still kind of doing a plot summary but that that whole animal thing like uh i don't know like i just feel i guess i can see it at the time like oh this is cool this is this is exotic this is indian this is the empire coming back to england and and oh there's one of these crazy guys this guy's got ptsd or something and he's brought back these fucking animals with him and he's letting them roam his estate but once you get past like the spectacle of it like why what like why would anybody well, have allowed these animals to be imported back into the country you know to, to me um i think it's a hint that rylot kind of being part of this old aristocracy you know like sort of like the ancien regime of like uh, you know of um of of france you know before the, re- the revolution where they had like peacocks in their garden and stuff like that you know all of these aristoc all of these aristocrats and and his just decaying and uh just you know gone to rot essentially mm-hmm. do you know what's happening here don't you exactly the same thing that happened with our james bond series our plot summaries um are, are becoming our discussions and that's cool like that's awesome it's organic whatever but like i remember with the the bond series we did like you know you, you did these plot summaries that were great and then i tried a couple which were fine but then eventually we just ended up talking our way around the plot summaries so that we got our angle in, and here we are talking about, talking about the investigation. <laughs> anyway, I mean, stop me at any time you want to. Yeah, no, but just, um, just, but, but just, you know, let's move forward here. So the sister ends up mysteriously dying in her bed. Uh, the, the the details in which lead to this, the up to Helen hearing a, a strange wish, um, a strange whistling sound, um, followed by a metallic clank. In which she then opens the door to the room, and then finds her sister screaming and convulsing uh, on the ground, and then soon dies. Uh, that's and then all she has it says for her, spe- her her last words is the speckled band, and for some reason this makes her think of the gypsies that also live on the grounds of Stoke Moran, in which uh, Doctor Rylot also um, as- as- like he goes and visits and associates and probably cooks and eats with them as well, and who knows what else. So definitely we have a very disturbed man living in this household, that's for sure. But still, the, this core, her sister's death obviously haunts her in- incredibly. And eventually she, you know, she gets on with life. Uh, she deals with, her, with, with Dr. Rylot's in, um, increased temper, uh, throwing, a, throwing like a, a, 
a, a tradesman into the river, uh, <laughs> avoiding little lawsuits like that, for example, trying to keep the, the, the household together. And, you know, for her gratitude, of course, we learn that it's all in effing vain. But uh, she eventually finds her way out by, by meeting uh, a, 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 a young officer that she's going to, uh, to, to marry. And, of course, uh, returning back to the house after these arrangements, uh, she learns that, the, uh, that, that because of some construction on, on, on a part of the house that her, her husband, her uh, stepfather has commissioned, uh, she has to return to the uh, room belonging to her, that, that, that her sister once occupied. And it is during that night, of course, that she hears that same whistling sound that automatically triggers her memory of her sister's death. And uh, this basically sends her uh, running um, to first a dog cart, then by uh, train to London, and in which she wakes uh, Sherlock Holmes in the early hours of the morning to tell her story. And, of course, Holmes listens with intensity, um, and there's very much clear that there is something very sinister going on here. And so this leads Holmes and Watson going up to Surrey to visit Stoke Moran and uh, scoping out the situation and uh, Holmes pretty much tells Stoner that she has to get out of the house uh, for the evening and then for, to allow, while Dr. Rylott is not at home, to, uh, enter the prem- to enter the bedroom in which she, her, her former sis- sister's room and stay there for the night. That is the plan that Holmes has devised. Um, of course, Watson is even trying to figure it out himself what's going to happen. But um, there's definitely something sinister about to go down here. Now... And like, and the portent, I, I think, of, of of this in the text is very strong, and it creates a very strong gothic atmosphere in here. That I, I found this story just as an aside. Uh, I was definitely, I had the goosebumps in some parts of this story. It was something was definitely messed up here, and I wasn't sure if it was supernatural, something to something to expect from like you know Hound of the Baskervilles in that regard. Uh, it was just very, very kind of tense um, reading this story. Uh, I'll, I'll now, weigh in when we go to talk about the investigation. Let's just get yeah, to our pipes. Yeah, exactly. So I want to point out, too, is that um, before they head down um, uh, to uh, Surrey to scope out the grounds at Stoke Moran, um, Dr. Rylott himself, after Stoner has left, shows up at Sherlock's apartment and in all forms of his bellowing anger and uh, intensity, uh, pretty much uh, tries to scare Sherlock Holmes away. And uh, we have this great scene where Holmes pretty much stands his ground, and it's uh, quite a great scene, actually. Yeah, the uh, guy the guy ends up like twisting the the metal poker for the fire and bending it over, and and then he just basically storms out and uh, threatens, as you say. And then at the end, uh, Holmes tells Watson to uh, make sure he brings his guns with him because they're going to bring yeah. their pistols. And um, an interesting thing, I also remember coming back to the James Bond theory series. Um, about the uh, Boothroyd, Major Boothroyd, who wrote in to Fleming said, well, this is actually not a, a, the weapon that, you know, the Secret Service agent should should be using, the Beretta. He should instead be using a Walther PPK, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if anybody wrote in to Conan Doyle, but there's been a lot of talk about the Eli number two, or Ellie's oh, yeah. number two, which, um, number- yeah, which uh, Holmes tells Watson to bring along with him. He says that it's an excellent argument with gentlemen who can twist steel pokers into knots. So, a great line. It's a great line, um, but there's, you know, uh, apparently they didn't actually make guns. They made ammunition, 
that company. And oh. this is kind of much like the crop in the goose. This is kind of something that has uh, spurred a bit of controversy as well among Holmesians. Huh. Sh- Sherlockians or whatever you call them. Sherlockians, Baker Street Irregulars. Yeah, interesting. It, but it's interesting, though, because like in a study in Scarlet, I believe it's, it's, it's mentioned that Watson keeps a bullpup, which is kind of like a snub-nosed revolver type, type weapon. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering. Well, there's a great um, essay. There's a great essay in one of them at my volumes about the guns of Sherlock Holmes. So maybe we can look into that later. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be interesting to explore. Um, moving forward, though, so yeah, after this yeah, encounter with, uh, with 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 Rylot, uh, they arranged to uh, get to get snuck into the uh, into the bedroom, and sure enough, uh, in, in, you know, in the darkness. Uh, in after now there's a whole scene before this that occurs before the the attempt uh, as i guess you could call it occurs where Holmes and Watson are well Holmes is scoping out the bedroom of both um the bedrooms of where Helen occupies and then of course as well as Dr. Rylot's bedroom um we'll get into that into the investigation though because that's kind of where we can explore you know what Holmes sees in the bedroom Versus, you know, what's in Dr. Vilat's room. But there is, just, just to, but just to clear, there is something about a ventilator and a bell pull that is key to the entire situation. Uh, as well as a safe. <laughs> as a, 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 a strong iron-clad safe and a, and a saucer of milk. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what, what happens is that in the dead of night, uh, after, after the uh, supposedly everyone is retired... The ventilator is seen to be open when the light coming from the other side, and uh, and um, what uh, Holmes encounters by sitting on the edge of the bed with Watson in the chair holding the gun is a snake uh, s- twisting its way down the bell pull and onto the bed, in which Holmes manages to flick away with his cane. Uh, the, the 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 snake, of course, then retreats down back the ventilator. Uh, and pretty much uh, already scared and frightened or angry, uh, takes it takes itself out on the person that sent it down the ventilator. And that would, of course, be Rylot himself, who is found in his room with the speckled band, so to speak, wrapped around him, uh, on top, on slithering on top of his forehead, uh, and him very much dead, just like uh, Helen's sister. Yeah, I don't quite agree with the way you're describing that, though. Um, and again, this is where the plot summary is just going to become part of our discussion because it's, it's taken us quite a while to get here. So um, I disagree with how you're, you're describing it. And he doesn't flick it with his cane. The two guys are sitting in the dark, and as soon as they hear that sound, they just unleash just friggin' terrifying, or sorry, terrifying lashes into the dark. Like the, This is what pisses me off about this story. These guys don't do any detection. They just decide to camp out in this haunted room like a bunch of teenagers, and once something happens, once they hear that cue that they're expecting, they're just in terror, lash out. They whip, they're, they're, they're swarming, uh, swapping along their sticks, they're jumping around the room. They're basically lashing out in every direction because they get, they're both getting creeped out. Holmes hits the snake, and it just manages to get itself back up and through the grate, and then yes. onto the guy... It's like this is a snake that has presumably been training for this kill for a while because eventually it would take its target, but it didn't do it every night, which is why she heard, which is why Helen heard the sound all the time. Holmes gets in there 
acts like a friggin' maniac in the dark, smacks the snake, and it just it has a semblance of self to crawl itself back through and then attack yes. Roy Lott who's waiting there. The whole thing is stupid. Like this is I I don't think the exotic pull pays off here. Like I don't know. I felt that the denouement was really disappointing considering the suspense, as you say, the, the goosebumps of the buildup. I, the rising action of the story is just fine. The denouement is a little bit, it's a little bit comical, man. It's a little bit like Disney for me. I, I, I see where you're coming from for sure. And I think in my analysis, I, I, and by sort of my analysis, sorry, my plot summary, I never really made any any statement towards what I thought about what happened at the end. Well, you said you said flicked. He flicked it with a stick. No, he didn't. He lashed out. In, in well, horror. he lashed it with yeah. He lashed it with his cane. Like he 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 he, he went at it. I was I was perhaps a bit uh, what's the word uh, kind of vague in the description of what he did. But it, essentially, my whole point into and and for the sake of you know of brevity, the snake gets back down. The the, the snake is is somehow uh, pushed back up the ventilator. To get back to where it was, yeah, but none of that. And, like we we don't we don't get any convincing description of any of that. That's just how Conan Doyle, you know, decides to. But to... see, that was my frustrating part about it, and I think now is that we've somehow we're not no longer in the uh, in the uh, outline of this of the, the the narrative. We're now somehow like in the investigation somewhere. Yeah, but uh, part we, of we've the we've got to be because this this plot summary is twenty two minutes long. Like we we got to get these other we got to get these done. So. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm pushing it in investigation because, in the spirit of brevity, as you say, we got to get there. Yeah. We got to get somewhere here. Oh, I know. And I was just going to say is that I was going to mention in the investigation that I found very hard to visualize in the in the writing the the presence of the ventilator and and and, and whatnot because I assume that the ven- that now that you mention it about how impossible that seemed that the snake would go back and up to back up and then back into the ventilator. It's now revealed to me, you know, in many ways, the way that you viewed it, uh, how the situation is, in fact, a lot more ridiculous than it initially appeared. Yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with your your feelings towards the the kind of macabre elements of the story. They're definitely there, and there is definitely something creepy about about what these guys are doing, and the fact that Watson, particularly as our narrator, is very unsettled, and he has just been attacked by a baboon before he gets into the room as well. Yeah, the baboon. I didn't think that was a big story thread that we need to pull on, though. <laughs> it's not. But again, that's my point. Like, like, is that just gimmicky or what? Like, oh, here's a baboon. Like, I, I do like the foreshadowing. You know, she says how he keeps exotic pets, but then leaves it and never sees, never thinks that maybe dad's got something else or stepdad's got something else hiding around that he, he could yeah. be killing me with, you know? Well, diving into the into the in the pipe into the pipes. Uh, Sorry, yeah, let's, let's do uh, that, please. Let 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 let's let let's light these suckers up. Okay, lit up now. Um, in terms of the perpetrator, or sorry, the principles for me, I, I went two point five. I didn't I didn't think there was anything great going on here. It was middling for me. All these guys do, Josh. You and I could have done the exact same thing. Listen to a lady tell us a story. Recognize all the clues that there's something mixed up here. We're take a couple of guns, hide out in the room, you know, take a couple of bottles of beer with us for bravery, and there you go. <laughs> Something's gonna happen, and we're just gonna we're we're gonna lash out in the dark as well when we hear those creepy sounds, and hopefully hit something. Ooh, look, we hit a poisonous snake that crawls back out and kills the perpetrator. Fucking perfect. Yeah. There's nothing great here. Holmes doesn't deduce a whole heck of a lot. He asks no. her he asks her to repeat some questions, but. That's it. Oh, like, but but the, but the dog cart. He figured out she took the dog cart because of the mud, yeah, right? True, true. Okay, fine. Yeah, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who cares, right? That don't affect yeah. the plot any. 
I, was I, don't, expecting, I don't find these guys do very much. I was actually expecting, I know this goes into the perpetrator part of things, but I was expecting for Dr. Ryla to get caught and go, and I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for these pesky <laughs> kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then the, the whole thing end with like a big hoagie sandwich that's like six feet long. Exactly. The hoagie sandwich. That's 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 the key element of the story was yeah, uh, missing. That was missing, yeah. I went 2.5, man, for because it was it, yeah, it was fun to to hear them, but this could have been any adventure story. This didn't need to be a Sherlock Holmes story. No, it's true. It wasn't characteristic of of Holmes, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I went 3 as a whole. I kind of liked uh the dog car thing a little bit, but I liked how Holmes like listened to the conversation and as she was telling it, you could kind of see in the writing that Holmes was picking up each little detail and it was doing his thinking. And Holmes, I think Conan Doyle does a great job of doing that of making Holmes say very little or do very little, but the writing kind of indicates that it's much more going below the surface. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um it was a pretty kind of at, in the end, it wasn't exactly a groundbreaking case for Holmes and it re- relied a lot on chance and luck in uh, in, in, in many ways. Um, I like the precautions that Holmes was taking. I liked his standoff uh, with Rylot in the doorway. He was unfazed by him completely. Um, and then how he bends the poker back up. There's some good Holmes badass yeah, There moments. is, yeah. There's a that couple kind of, of like, that, yeah, okay. That a couple kind of moments get, like as, that. As, I, as you said, that kind of gets sort of uh, they've kind of fizzle out in the third act, you know, with Holmes mm-hmm. just like attacking a snake in the dark, you know what I mean? And, oh, and he yelling out loud too. Do you see, and he even yells out loud, like, do you see it, Watson? Do you see it? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and then like, obviously like, so, so the cover's blown and Ryla's going, oh shit, oh shit, oh shit. Like he could just like ran right, right out of the door then, but no, he stays and waits for the snake to get to the ventilator to bite him. So... Yeah, I'm I'm being a little bit harsh on the story, I guess, because the truth is, it is fun to see Holmes and Watson in a very different environment. Like, this is the first time they camped out in a haunted house, and this is the first time they do a Scooby-Doo mystery. And that's I should have, <laughs> I, sh- I should have taken the Scooby-Doo theme, actually, and, and played it here today, but it, it is okay, you know? Like, it's it's all right. It, it It's not disappointing, and it would make for a good show, a good film, a good TV episode. But as a Sherlock Holmes story... I don't. I don't object to them being in this environment. I object to the fact that they didn't do a hell of a lot to get there. Like any 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 police officer worth his salt would have said, okay, well we'll put a SWAT team in there, or we'll go undercover, we'll get some. I mean, this is just Holmes doing what any you know normal thinking person would do. There ain't a hell of a lot of genius to this plan of no. theirs to go hunt. No, it. I agree. There's yeah. there were some good character moments for Holmes in this story, but as a as an investigation, it was kind of blah. Right. I'll tell you something else I didn't like about the investigation moving on. Um, I felt not only was there way too much info drop and confusion, the first seven pages of this story for me, I had to reread them because she yeah. she died, her mother died when she was two. She had a twin, remarried in Calcutta, but uh, they were they spent time in, in, in India and then he's the, the, the stepfather and once she gets married or engaged, her money goes... And then I then it hit me like a fucking lightning bolt. This is sign of the four meets a case of identity. That's all this story is. You've got the exotic nature of the Indian subcontinent, and you have the the exotic pets, and you've got the the Raj and all this stuff going on with the backstory of Roy Lott. 
and him going crazy. And then you've got a case of identity, which is Hosmer Angel, of course, being the seductor to keep her away, f- or to keep what's her face, Mary, away from getting married, so that her father-in-law can claim mm. can mm. claim the inheritance. You've got the exact mm. same story going mm. on. Mm, that is definitely true. That is a good point, man. It's almost like it's a uh, uh, it's like a Frankenstein's monster of those stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I couldn't give yeah. this I couldn't really give this high marks for investigation because although I liked I liked the environment of being in in a haunted house this wasn't a hell of a lot different than either of those two stories mixed together in no. a pot. So I went for a 3 for investigation because there were some fun moments and there was some nice writing in there but um I felt like I'd read this type of stuff before, apart from Holmes and Watson shitting their pants in the dark. Nothing really original going on here. You got a woman who's being uh who who's engaged and so she's killed by her dad to save the inheritance that she gets from her mother um and then you've got another woman who is suspiciously going to get married or is uh got a guy and is kind of going to get engaged and all of a sudden now that she's made that announcement she starts to hear the hissing and she starts or the the whistling and she starts to hear the metallic sound and you know that that's that you know i i just went three and Part of me feels like that was a bit too generous, but I just felt too much info drop. The first seven pages are way too unnecessarily character-laden. And, uh, okay, tell me the guy's crazy. He's from India. He keeps wild pets. Move on. You know, but because this is Conan Doyle, maybe having one too many nights out this month, and this would have been February, by the way, of 1891, he, yeah, he's got to rewrite elements from his previous stories and... That's okay. That's cool. But I don't have to like them all, right? And this no. story, I, I didn't like. Like, I'm not saying writers can't rehash their own work, but this was a an okay story. There's nothing really original in it, though, for the investigation, so I went for a three. Did you know that Arthur Conan Doyle considers this the, his favorite story, the best story that he wrote? Well, maybe he figures it's an improvement on the other two that we talked about, but we saw this before, and I think it would be silly to pretend we didn't. Oh, yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And you definitely opened my eyes there, too. I never really thought about it until you mentioned it. And now I'm seeing it kind of in that in that light. I had a 3.5 initially for the investigation. Because okay. um, I, I, I did like, as, but it was more so for the story than it was the investigation. I didn't mind the info dump too much. Uh, that was just like the classic, you know, the uh, the uh, the uh, the client, you know, stating her case and creating the background and giving that little kind of like that, that, that jump to a... To, to another Vista backdrop that Conan Doyle likes to do and give some exotic background. I didn't mind that, uh, despite, you know, the, the cliche that kind of surrounds it. Um, I, I kind of liked the idea of them camping out in the house, the haunted house story aspect. That was kind of, that was, uh, you know, that made uh, the atmosphere good. The conclusion was a little confusing and uh, very also anticlimactic too in, in in many ways despite the poetic justice that Rylot gets mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the ending was very climatic like you never heard what happened afterwards how stoner's reaction or anything like that and uh, it just seems like he just kind of just kind of like just struck this one out you know like uh wham bam thank you ma'am yeah. so i give it three okay cool um i went uh for perpetrator i was a little more generous here uh i thought grimsby was I mean, he's a crazy guy, right? A friend to gypsies. He keeps baboons and cheetahs as pets. Um, narrowly escaping a capital sentence for beating his native Indian butler to death. Uh, and, you know, how much did he love these women that he was married to? Very unlikely. His fascination with beasts foreshadows the means of murder by the snake. 
Obviously, he's devised a very intricate way of, of killing his daughters involving this ventilator and the, and the swamp adder. And by the way, that's another thing, too, um, that my book goes on in quite good detail about how the swamp adder... It was like a lizard more so than a snake, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Uh, the deadliest snake in India, Holmes says with an exclamation mark. Anyway, as if he could identify it. How does snake get up the ventilator? You know, like... I don't know. I don't know. It just, it just fucking knew what to do, right? I don't know. Um, yeah, because it's in a friggin' metal case, or it's in like a, a big iron... Uh, safe but whatever i, I guess that there's air holes in there so it can breathe somehow <laughs> i don't know i don't know. maybe the milk gives it some sort of extra like lung property um as i've already said he's described this dad is described as so crazy that it's like it, it feels like a bluff to me that he'd end up being the perpetrator but no he's just really that sick he is a sick guy what worked on me was the suspicion that helen was somehow involved and was trying to use Holmes with her father in some way I was expecting something a little bit more clever. Uh, but no, he, he really just is nuts and greedy. He dies in this sort of karma episode, you know, bitten by his own snake. Um, something Freudian there for sure. But Holmes, <laughs> his, his kind of thrashing defense, um, I guess, matches Grimsby's own violence and, you know, his, his own turn. I, I went for, for a four. And that is really generous, really, because I didn't like the way his character was laid out in a massive info dump. But I did, yeah. think, I did think that he was interesting. He kept me very interested. I think he would be a good villain in a story. I, but I would like for this story to have been an extra 10 pages so that I didn't I, – I, I could have heard some of this info dump maybe from – like in a different way, you know? Or like maybe Holmes in – like he did in um, – what was the one where the, the, the ship, the, uh, the five orange pips, maybe Holmes does a bit of digging on this guy at the library and finds a couple of letters and learns things like he did in the sign of four about, about who this guy is. The fact that we get it all in like seven pages of info dump from his daughter-in-law, I found that really dry. I think that there is a wonderfully interesting character here. I just don't think on the page, and so that's why I gave it a four, but I don't think that it was presented well, which is unfortunate. So, I would like to have seen his character revealed in a different way. I guess is what I'm trying to say because I do. Yeah. I do. Or built or built up there. in a better built up in a better way, like in a better through, way, like yeah. each for each like faucet of his character to be uh, shown. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I I would kind of like maybe I think if they had not thrown the butler beating to death backstory. Yes. I, yeah. I think that would have definitely took some of some of the suspicion off the character. I agree. Like, because that's not something I mean? you're going to tell your daughter or you know what I mean? Like you, you you're going to try to hide that fact. So that could have been something that maybe Watson and Holmes teased out in their investigation somehow. You know, they found evidence of this. If you if if his character was revealed as being crazy and nuts more more slowly, more carefully, then I think I would have had a lot more interest in what happened overall, but uh, no, this was just a haunted house story with a crazy innkeeper, basically, like you said, the Scooby Doo of it all. So, I went, yeah. I went for a four. Um, yeah, yeah, I was four as well. Okay, um, for, for me, the, for, for the for the act, for, for the exact reasons you state, I cool. found him as a villain, as, as like as, as sketched out as a villain, like in in uh, you know if you were t- like I guess an outline format. Uh, he he's definitely memorable, but again he was just like too good to be true. This guy is, is the actual villain. And then he was the villain. And then it was just kind of like, Oh, okay. So mm-hmm. there's that. <laughs> there is some nice writing here in the environment. Um, I do like the way that the, the estate is described. I think that's, that's effective. Um, 
you know, it's described as like a uh, part of it is decrepit, as you say, and it's described as being almost like a crab, the way its arms stretch out and um, kind of grab at you as you're going to visit the place. I mean, there's a lot of gothic imagery here, but you got to remember uh, as well that the stories of Edgar Allan Poe, and we're going to talk about those in the next story, they definitely are at work here in the British readership. We know that Conan Doyle was a fan of these stories, and his detective uh, was a little bit, or who had already been established, his, I don't remember the guy's name, what was Poe's detective? Something like uh, Ducat or something? Yeah, or... something like that, yeah. Anyway, um, <clears throat> we get that we get that description, um, which is quite nice, and the whole... I mean, I don't mind reading it. We haven't done a quote of this yet. The building was of gray, lichen-blotched stone with a high central portion and two curving wings like the claws of a crab thrown out on each side. In one of these wings, the windows were broken, blocked with wooden boards while the roof was partly caved in, a picture of ruin. The center portion was a little better repair, but in the right-hand block was comparatively modern, and the blinds in the windows with the blue smoke curling up from the chimneys showed that this was where the family resided. Some scaffolding had been erected against the end wall and the stonework had been broken into, but there were no signs of any workmen at the moment of our visit. So, yeah, I mean, you get a nice sort of gothic description there of this of this uh, rundown estate, and that's cool, but ugh, you know, anything really you're going to take away from this story, really, that's like sparkling in its description? Not really. And so I went for a three, which is passable plus. I actually really like the um, the moment where Holmes is scoping out Rylot's uh, chambers and also um, Helen's chambers, and because I just think it, 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 this was the moment to me where like the, the narrative, as in terms of a suspense story, was building to it was building and building and building, you know, before it kind of fizzled out uh, into into camp. <laughs> um, Dr. Grimesby Rylot's chamber was larger than that of his stepdaughter, but was as plainly furnished. A camp bed, a small wooden shelf full of books, mostly of technical character, an armchair beside the bed, a plain wooden chair against the wall, a round table, and a large iron safe were the principal things which met the eye. Holmes walked slowly round and examined each and all of them with the keenest interest. <coughs> What's in there, he asked, tapping the safe. My stepfather's business papers. Oh, you have you have seen inside them. <laughs> yeah, business papers. Yeah, only once some years ago. I remember that it was full of papers. There isn't a cat in it, for example? No? <laughs> what a strange idea. Well, look at this. He took up a small saucer of milk which stood on, t on top of it. No, we don't keep a cat, but there is a cheetah and a baboon. It's just this... I kind of just like her reaction, like, no... What a strange idea about Holmes yeah. suggesting the cat, right? I just felt like a real kind of human moment there. Like it was just they're just seeing like, why is this safe here in the room and blocked, and why is there a saucer of milk? And I just think he really sets up the the, the third act and of, of this tale in a great way. But he doesn't a, a, a little slow on the rebound. You know what I mean? Like it's just yeah. There's some cool stuff in the environment, but I don't yeah. Know. So that's well, why I give the, you know. that's why I think the environment was the saving grace of this particular story, in my okay. opinion. Right. So I give it four point five. Oh wow! Okay, wow, that's 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 cool. Uh, secondary characters, well, there weren't really any. Uh, not really. The cheetah and the baboon, um, the dead sister, Helen. I Helen, uh, I guess she's like the client. Okay, yeah, she's fine, but. She was kind of just a damsel, wasn't she? Like she's so yeah, nervous was, and anxious. There that wasn't much to her in that respect. Nah. No, no. She she rocks up. She gets a free night in a hotel, and uh, 
these guys get to take care of the problem. So, yeah, I think that... She didn't get a free night in the hotel. Yeah, she did. She just went to a part part of the uh, of the house that wasn't uh, that was still that, that that she was told to move out of because of construction. No, she didn't. They switched. No, she had to be in the. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Because he tells her to take hotel. from this room yeah, that yeah. you'll need for the night, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They they were in the room of the hotel when she gave the signal through the lamp, right? That's right. They were in the in, they were in the inn, and they told the innkeeper that. They would they would be going to meet an acquaintance late at night, meeting, and they wouldn't yeah. be back until the morning. Mm-hmm. Cool, right? Well, okay, fine. That doesn't improve her <laughs> score. That don't improve her score any. You're right on the point, but uh, I went for three. <laughs> yeah, I did too. All right. Well, totaling that up, then uh, that brings you to let's see what we got here: a three and a three and a three is nine, thirteen. 17.5 for you, buddy, on the speckled band, and me. That's a three, three, three is a nine. Four is thirteen. 15.5 for me. That must be one of my lowest scores ever. Uh, which is funny because the story is kind of fun in some ways, but I don't think it's a. I, I'm really. F- it's it's not a Holmesian tale. No. Well, apparently it is if Conan Doyle rates it as his absolute favorite. <laughs> Despite a lot of the the issues with it, and also his fact checking. I don't know. I mean, I'm 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 trying not to be too negative about it, but I feel like. Yeah, no, I'm going to stick to what I said. This is the sign of four meets a case of identity. And yeah, there's good elements in both of those stories that were brought to the four here in this one. And I don't have an objection to rehashing your material. But I think that the way Grimsby's character was laid out for us was clumsy and really concentrated in a big chunk instead of like this could have been a novel. Do you know what I mean? Yes. This, could have, this could have been a novel. If if you want to tell me all these different facets of his character, if that's important, then allow Holmes to deduct something from it. He doesn't deduct anything. He eventually, you know, he doesn't do anything with this info drop. All he does is go away and get into the room for the night with a gun and lash out at the dark. That's all he does. Yeah. There's nothing... It seems like it would definitely be catered better to 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 like a book length uh, story than a short story, I, like I a agree. novella. Yeah, even a no- yeah novella's length. Anyway. Um, luckily, although the, the, the story did disappoint me somewhat, um, I managed to find the perfect song for this, and I, I do hope you agree with me. How, <laughs> how, how up are you on your, um, how up are you on your, your 80s pop and rock? Um, I consider myself, you know, I'm a fan of new wave, of new wave and stuff like that, and I recall a lot of the other stuff that went on at the time. Okay, well, do you remember Duran Duran? Oh, yes. Okay, well... I hope you like this, Josh. Um, we've got here, for your listening pleasure, Union of the Snake by Duran Duran. Oh, I don't know if I recall that one. This is what Grimsby Roylot listens to when he feeds his snake the milk. <laughs>
Duran Duran. Gotta like a bit of Duran Duran, hey? Oh yeah, for sure. Hungry like the wolf. Hungry like the wolf. A view to a kill. Union of the snake. Rio. They got some classics. Oh, Rio for sure. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, I thought that was fitting for our speckled band. And uh, here we are into our last 35 minutes or so, moving on to the third and final story of today. We're going to talk about the engineer's thumb. Or as I call it, Victor Hatherley and the no good bad day. <laughs> the no good bad day. Uh-huh. Or, if you prefer, young and thumbless. Young and thumbless, yeah. The young and the thumbless. The young, the young and the thumbless. <laughs> Uh-huh, uh-huh. I'm visualizing um, an uh, hourglass now in a familiar tune. Uh-huh. Like sands in the hourglass. No, no, these, these are, are our lives. Yeah, these are the young and the thumbless. Yeah, the young and the thumbless. Well, we kind of mixed the two together. We did. And you mentioned um, the the kind of horror genre type elements to the last story. This story is like... I, I don't know if it's a love letter so much as it is... Uh, an aping of some of Edgar Allan Poe's best work. This this story, to me, reeks of Poe admiration. And that's a cool thing. I don't have a problem with that, you know? I mean, uh, I'm not one of these guys that feels like every story needs to be original and every story needs to be well met. I mean, yeah, I criticized the last one five minutes ago for making a, a blend of the sign of four in a case of identity, but it was more in the way that that story was built, less the fact that it was unoriginal, you know? And here mm -hmm. we've got a lot of a lot of gothic uh, elements coming in here. Uh, I don't want to step on your toes, though. So if you can keep it short and sweet, let's do a plot summary on the adventure of the engineer's thumb. So unlike the previous story, uh, this one takes place uh, while Watson is uh, living, um, in the, I guess, in the present day at this when he when he's writing it uh, uh, with Mary. Uh, he's in this story here. This is one of the short stories, I think, of two apparently, where Watson brings the ki the the client to homes directly, and this is because Watson is awakened in his house early in the morning um, by by the local train guard uh, that uh, there's a gentleman here uh, who who is waiting for him in his consulting room, uh, I guess, where he sees his patients in his household. Uh, and th this man, who's, who, who is a, a hydraulics engineer, Victor Hatherley, has this very uh, interesting tale to tell Watson uh, in regard to um, how, in many ways, it led to him losing his thumb, uh, the, the bloody stump in which he shows Dr. Watson, who mends it for him and wraps it up and, and w whatnot, so that he can bring uh, Victor Hatherley, the engineer, to homes to, to you know determine what exactly happened to this man's thumb and happened to him as a whole and what is this this the situation so as it turns out as Hatherley tells Holmes and Watson uh, on Baker Street that Hatherley is a is as a hydraulics engineer is approached by a gentleman uh, Colonel Lysander Stark a German uh, or German sounding is what we kind of get the impression of uh, that uh, he will pay uh, 50 shillings to Hatherley uh, for examining um, a malfunctioning hydraulic press. The catch of on this whole matter is uh, he must come 
and arrive there by midnight so that he has to view this hydraulic press in, 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 in the long hours of the e- in the late hours of the evening, which is kind of suspicious. But back then, 50 shillings is nothing to sneeze at. So, you know, grateful for the work and uh, and as well for the opportunity and the shillings. Um, Hadley agrees. He has a late supper and he takes a cart uh, to the train station to get all the way out to to the to the uh, county in which uh, he 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 then meets the uh, tr- the um, trap, uh, which takes him approximately into the into the evening, twelve miles away to this household in which um, he where Lysander Stark is waiting and brings him in um, dr- directly, um, and 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 then sends him. T- to a uh, a uh, room to wait while he converses with his colleague, who we know is as an Englishman named Ferguson, while um, Hatherley is waiting around to be summoned to inspect the hydraulic press. The um, a young German girl show, shows up and warns him to go away to flee the scene. And of course, gr- greedy for the shillings and for the opportunity, he poops her and uh, willingly goes into the room with. Uh, Stark to investigate the hydraulic press. Um, the room itself that he enters is in fact the hydraulic press itself. Now he's there on the pretense that they're going to be breaking down uh, earths, uh, you know, like first for, for uh, tilling earth and for, for you know, in terms of uh, making the soil flat for construction. But in this case here, the hydraulic press is, is a room within the house. So obviously this is definitely tr- you know, raise his hackles a bit, and when he realizes that by the by by the resin on the bottom of the uh, floor there, uh, that uh, the when he's when he's examining the inside the hydraulic press itself, i.e. the room, that he's noticing that this is not chilled earth that's being smashed here. This is like some sort of metal of some of some kind. He realizes something is up, and he feels angry about it, and uh, he he rashly overreacts and. And provokes, you know, not not, not thinking. Uh, Stark asking him, you know, what is going on here, really? Stark's response is to clean up the situation because something is nefarious is going on there, and he tries to pull a temple of doom on um, on, on our dear Victor Hatherley here. And as the the as the uh, the, the ceiling, i.e., the press, comes down upon him, there's little uh, light that um, that uh, Hatherley's seeing at the end of this tunnel. Um, but for the sake of the wooden panels on the side, which he sees can be um, a- accessed by, by by pulling them out, this leads him into a, a, a this l- 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 leads him into a into a, a corridor where the German girl is 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 is, um, a, 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 is while he's supposedly being crushed um, with, with the with with the, with uh, Stark and the other standing outside like Bond villains waiting for him to die. Uh, he manages to to get away with uh, to an extent, anyways, with the German girl. But once Stark realizes that he is in fact uh, not dead, he comes and finds the him and the German girl in the, in the girl's room. Now, th- uh, Stark is a crazy mother f- fracker. Uh, mother fracker. <laughs> Fracker, uh, because he's he's now instead of using a hydraulic press as his impl- implementation of of death, uh, he is now using a cleaver. So this crazy German guy with a cleaver is coming after Victor Hatherley, who is just who has just sur- survived uh, an Indiana Jones like experience. So uh, acting like a teenager, like a 
being caught with the uh, with the girl next door, he jumps out the window from from the irate father figure here and uh, hanging onto the edge of the ledge. Uh, he loses his thumb, and of course, in which he plummets to the rose bush below, where he passes soon passes out. Now, miraculously, he wakes up in the rose bush uh, with nothing really uh, happening. Uh, well, he he wakes out not in the rose bush, but just outside of the rose bush. And, and he's, uh, been ca- he's been carried to the edge. Yeah, yeah. He, he claps in the he claps in the rose bridge. Uh, yeah, and then he then he wakes up that he's found he's near the train station near near the village where he arrives. And uh, when he arrives, um, the, the the guard, you know, there's there's no sign of the house or he's definitely been moved. So this pretty much leads him the guard to the train guard to bring him all the way to the the closest town where Watson is and uh, where Watson examines him and then brings him to Holmes, bringing things full circle. So Holmes, using master deduction, i.e. none in this case, uh, uh, brings... Well, that's not entirely true. Well, okay. He he does deduce deduce the horse, didn't actually travel anywhere. Yeah, because during the inquiry, I want to point out that this goes into the investigation thing, which we'll get into as well. That's okay. Let's just... Yeah, exactly. It goes into the investigation thing that he was asking if the horses, you know, if their fur was, was you know, it was glossy as opposed to that they were sweaty so that they were taking a long trip, right? And uh, which would make it seem like it was, you know, six kilometers or or five kilometers or six kilometers uh, from the town or, or sorry, 12 kilometers from the town. And this ends ends up being is that uh, the house itself was in fact right next to the town, and that the trip was just made to go then and back, just to, just just to hide the illusion of where the house was. And as it turns out, uh, with the help of the, of the local Scotland Yard detective that 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 is with them, um, there is a uh, counterfeiting ring in the area, and uh, of course, Lysander Stark and Ferguson and the girl are in fact this ring, and Hatherley fell afoul of them essentially. And they learned that the, uh, the, the one of the other people, uh, another engineer, had vanished mysteriously in that area more than a year ago, and that indicates here that you know they're they're getting they're trying to hide not, knowledge of their operation. When they arrive at the house, finally, which they find is near the village, by retracing the steps based on Holmes' assumption with the uh, horses, uh, they realize that the house is in fact burned down completely. The lantern in which. Uh, he was given to examine the hydraulic press was left in it was left into was left in the chamber when when Hatherley made his his uh his, his his escape and of course this compressed the lamp which the the fluids leaked out and caused the walls to catch fire which led to the incineration of the house and it is pretty much declared in in the writing there that uh the girl and and the englishman perhaps uh this this ferguson type who might have been a doctor who was living in the area under an alias, uh, they pretty much uh, moved, moved him to uh, safety because they weren't as crazy evil as his Lysander Stark guy was. Yeah, but they do manage and, to they do manage to escape with the money. Yeah, they so. managed to escape. So this is kind of uh, this is almost like a, 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 all the way back to the to the first story. Uh, 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 a scandal in Bohemia where the villain gets away in this respect. Yeah. And I, I love the ending of this story. It's, it's very quick. It's very, it's a great moment for Holmes because the engineer says ruefully, as we took our seats to return to London, it's been a pretty business for me. I've lost my thumb and I've lost a 50 guinea fee. And what have I gained? 
Experience, said Holmes, laughing. Indirectly, it may be of value, you know. You have only to put it to, into words to gain the reputation of being excellent company for the remainder of your existence. So in other <laughs> words, you haven't won anything, but you've got a great story to tell. <laughs> Absolutely. I like, I like that. And I love the fact that these guys escape because while it is an easy thing to just write in at the end, they escape, it gives Holmes another rare failure in that, in that sense. Although he had it all worked out, he, he doesn't manage to apprehend them. He's too slow getting there. And they... I mean, conceivably, they leave with money. The, the clue we're given is that early that morning, a peasant had met a cart containing several people and some very bulky boxes driving rapidly in the direction of Reading. So presumably the, the, the cart with the, the, the boxes are heavy with laden cash or, you know, false coin. Yes. Yeah. That, I, mean, that's, I, that's I, I like that. I like and that. And I want to mention it, it was Reading is the county, continue. by the way. It's Reading. Yes. Reading. Yeah. I, I loved, I loved that the idea that, you know, Holmes could meet this guy, these three again somewhere. Uh, I thought this was a, I thought, well, I mean, it was good, good plot summary first of all, uh, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed uh, revisiting it that way, like to kind of hear your summary of it because I, I did enjoy this story. I'll, I'll put it out there. Um, I will. I mean, why don't I just go through my pipes and then I'm going to ask you a few questions about yours. Is that are you cool with that? Yeah, you just go right into your pipes. You definitely because... enjoy the story. You definitely enjoy the story a lot more than than. I did. I okay. liked it, but uh -huh. I, I don't think I had the uh, the uh, Poe inspiration like like you had on my mind here. So I right. didn't see it in that context. Okay. Well, when well when I said that, I, I was feeling I was feeling a lot of Edgar Allan Poe elements because I've read a lot a lot of Poe stories as well, and you know the Pit and the Pendulum and the Purloined Letter and all of these things. You know, um, you've got and the the Cask of Amontillado where you've got the the guy being buried. Uh, beneath a brick or underground in a wine cellar beneath a brick wall like it's all very you know chained to the wall and stuff there's all kinds of stuff like that going on here this is a dark story it's a dark story not just because a guy's running around with a meat cleaver chopping off hands and thumbs and trying to trying to close shop on on the the leak of what they're doing but it's a dark story for other reasons too but I'll just go through my my pipes um, <clears throat> Holmes I think you are you're absolutely correct he doesn't do a lot here uh, he really doesn't. He he's kind of on the back foot, and I think he's on the back foot because Watson, first of all, brings this case to him. And although we don't really read it, I sense as a reader, I don't read the words, but I sense in the reading that he is a he, he's kind of like hmm. I wish I had kind of found this one myself, but okay, Watson, you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you this one type thing. So I, I thought there was an interesting, if subtle, power struggle going on there, and. And again, I'm, I'm being very generous to it. I, I'm not saying there's great evidence for it, but as a reader and as a developing fan of these stories, um, which I think you'll be happy to hear, I am imagining and I'm buying into this being something Watson's quite proud of. I've got agency here now. I'm bringing you this man. I'm bringing you a wild story. Let's see if yes. we can get to the bottom of it. And so I like that. Holmes being a little bit on the back foot and being wrong ultimately at the end. Uh, not wrong, sorry, but just too slow in getting the guys... Yeah. The the investigation, one thing I greatly admired about this was the pace. I thought the pace of this story really, really suited. It was noticeably different, quicker, more linear, and thrilling than the last story for me. There weren't so many info drop moments. There weren't so many sit and let me tell you this, let me tell you this. And when the engineer was telling a story, it was told with an action that felt suspenseful to me. Unlike Helen Stoner telling about her stepfather's career 
it, as a, um, a general in Calcutta. Like, that was boring the tits off me. This this is interesting to me because he's fresh from it. Watson fixes his thumb and immediately brings him, before he gets to the police, to Holmes. And I, I, like, I like the immediacy of the story in this way. Um, the perpetrator... Um, was nuts. You know, as you said, Fritz, as she's called in the story by the German girl, Alessander Stark, is is trying to use and expend with these young people, particularly in this case, the young engineer, Hatherley, uh, once his hydraulic press is repaired so that the counterfeiting can continue. He's very clever because he knows that by picking someone young and by picking someone single, deliberately pruning or preening them, I suppose you would say, he's picking people who can or will be more likely to be seduced by money and more likely to keep a secret. I like that. Mr. Ferguson, who's introduced in the story as Stark's assistant when Hatherley tells of his arrival at the at the home, is uh, he's very quiet. He's an English guy, Ferg- uh, Ferguson. He talks with an English accent, uh, but he isn't quite the, the ringleader of this group. But he's an interesting sort of henchman. And although he doesn't do anything apart from run down the hall... Uh, obviously, to support uh, Stark as he's running around with this meat cleaver, you, you get the feeling like these guys are, are a pretty interesting one-two punch. And I, I felt that that was cool. Um, Elise, this strange German woman who Elise, doesn't, yes, that, yeah, she that, she doesn't really do much, but she's got obviously a, a moral core that leads her to wanting to help Hatherley out. She's frustrated that all of these crimes turn into some sort of physical or uh, or aggressive violent act as well. And so she's kind of had the end of it. And so a bit of a turncoat here against her own kind. She helps Hatherley escape death. Um, but Ferguson helps him too, though. It's because there's two foot, there's footsteps of footprints. So it's the German mm-hmm. girl. It was Elise, and I think it was also Ferguson as well. Yeah, somebody has to help yeah, Elise move him. And so that that's pretty cool. You know, I, I do like that, that there's this... We, you know, we can do what we're doing. We can be criminals, but we don't have to be killers. You know, I, I think that's cool. This is my theory. This is my theory on, on the setup of this gang. And tell me if you disagree with me. You got the ringleader, Stark, who is pretty much the boss man, you know, telling people what to do and get it done and make sure it's handled. And he procures the, the engineers. He procures everything, everything else, right? Then you have Ferguson, the doctor, which indicates some scientific background, possibly. Mm-hmm. So he could be the one who does the forging, you know, like making all the plates and whatnot, you know, of the, on, on the press. Right. Okay. So like the forging, for example, like he, he, he could be the one that's part of like the, the, the scientific part of the operation itself, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe, you know, he, we might, he might've been, might've been a scientist or a forger and he fell in love with this German girl. And maybe there's a connection between him and her. And perhaps Elise might even be like the sister to the Colonel. I just thought there was some kind of relationship going on there where okay, people were stuck cool. together uh, because of their circumstances and the way they are. But yet they still managed to some managed to retain, you know, their humanity and their and their more and their sense of morality. That's cool. I like that idea. Um, I hadn't really read that into it, but yeah, I mean, there's obviously a story there to tell with these guys and the possibility of a story to be told with these guys because they escaped. And maybe this is one that sticks in sticks in Holmes's craw a little bit, you know, the ones that got away. So there's something in that. Um, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's like that because even when he lost with uh, you know against Irene Adler, he wasn't mm-hmm. really nonplussed about it, you know. You're right, he wasn't. But you can you can. F- he likes solving the case. What happens to the suspects afterwards? I don't think he really cares about. 
you know you're right josh i mean i'm i'm reading too much into it i'm reading too much like i might uh for a different protagonist i think you're absolutely correct holmes gets the satisfaction the thrill uh from the tantalizing is 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 all in saving solving the case and he does that so uh maybe you're right you know he's moved well he's it's moved possibility anyways closer, it's, it's yeah. something to draw on, on how you view his character there's it so is. many interpretations of sherlock holmes that people make you know like and there's so many out there that have different, you know, different presentations of him. So, but he does get satisfaction to... out of out of solving and apprehending. Like he he likes being able to put one over on the police, and he's not able to do that here. No, exactly. I also think he he also kind of enjoys the, the you know, and he's very lighthearted when he tells himself, "Well, now you got a story to tell for the rest of your life. You'll never be be tired of company." You know, so yeah, yeah. He, he saw like the the silver lining of the whole situation anyway. He did. Um, the environment here, uh, I gave the environment, sorry, for perpetrators, I gave a four. Um, the environment here, I also gave a four. I thought that for a story that didn't really use or have all that many locales, apart from Baker Street and this place up in Berkshire and Eyemouth in Berkshire, I loved, and I really did love it, like when um, Hatherley shows up in the cart uh, after being basically driven around in circles for an hour. Yeah. He, yeah. he rocks up to the estate not far away from the train station and he goes into this darkened place and he's met by this creepy woman. Uh, she's attractive, but she looks very stern and young and just, you know, old beyond her years type thing. But she turns out to be Elise, the lady that helps him. But then young, they, a young housefrau. Yeah, <laughs> a housefrau. Then you've got the, the wood paneled um, hallways and the floor that leads to this chamber in which the hydraulic press rests and is needing his his uh, his help or his repair. And he steps in there basically, described as like a, a big cupboard, not big enough for anything more. Um, this is when his suspicions are arising. I love the description of this hydraulic press that's just there in the middle of in the middle of of the room. Like it's it's fascinating to me. And this is where I get a lot of Poe, because this isn't just going to be um, something that is is like a an item in the plot. This is going to be a feature that motivates what happens in the story because if he doesn't get out of here, he's dead and there's no story to tell. And so obviously we know he escapes, but it's really cool. Like there's proper suspense here for me. And this is one of the first times in the story, in these stories that I have felt, and I, I say this truthfully, that I felt like proper, um, proper engagement with, uh, that sort of thrill. I know that there are some moments in the other stories where I'm I'm, I'm excited to read on, but here, like I, I'm I'm really interested in this. Like, how's this guy going to get out of here? And oh yeah, yeah, I remember he noticed that the woods were that the that the walls were wooden, and that's a crack through the the boards. At least helps him out, and he manages to make it through with a kick. And that's good writing. That that's good uh, writing. That's, yeah, I mean, I think this is really cool. Playing the clues, right? It's cool, and then. You know, you hear the, the 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 footsteps up above, and you know that the guys are coming down. And next thing you know, he's hanging out a window, and a meat cleaver chops off his thumb. I mean, this is good, fun, rollicking, horrific suspense. And the idea, yeah. the you know, the themes that are kind of spitting out here of the isolation and the claustrophobia that all speaks to me of Edgar Allan Poe. And I I like that we're getting a little bit of that of that darkness here in Conan Doyle because this guy Lysander Stark is nuts, and he is. He's really interesting, um, and I like 
the environment they've built around this. The fact that he puts a hydraulic press in the middle of the home also suggests that this is an outfit that has been working well for a while. It doesn't want to to lose, you know? Because exactly. he, he, it's not, they're fully invested. Yeah, it's they're not a portable invested. machine. Yeah. Anyway. So in a way, they kind of do lose because how are they going to get that another hydraulic press like they are? Like, they're going to have some hard time reestablishing their operation again. So in yeah. a way, even though Holmes didn't crack the case, so to speak, uh, him and Hatherley, I think they managed to put a big dent into their operation anyway. Oh, for sure. They certainly did, yeah. And, um, and, and that's Watson's doing. You know, because he rocks up at Watson's place first, and he doesn't know Watson's relationship with Holmes or anything of the sort. So he could have ended up with the police, and then this thing could have taken three times as long. But it's all Watson that kind of, whether he knows it or not, whether he's deliberately responsible for it or not, he's he's the cog that gets this machine working in that way. So, yeah, I went four for environment, and for secondary or supporting players, I went three and a half, because although I really like Elise and Mr. Ferguson, and I like their sort of, the depth that's hinted at their characters as being helpers and being sort of uh, peripheral members to this this uh, counterfeit ring, um, there's not enough there, really, to, to go more than three and a half. I think that there's a depth that's hinted at, which could come back later, or at least, you know, it satisfies the reader to think it could come back, so... I went three and a half for that, and my total score is twenty out of twenty-five for the engineer's thumb. It surprised me how much I read, or how much I enjoyed this story. I didn't expect to enjoy it quite that much, but I did. I thought this was a fun, and and I'll come back to the idea of the investigation being linear. I think that once in a while, this is refreshing to get a story that's easy to read, easy to move with, and that keeps ticking along quite comfortably without too many stops and info dumps and can you work this out and here's a mystery and there's a puzzle like once in a while i want Holmes on a quick fast adventure and this this is a really satisfying one for me because of the macabre gothic elements the action uh some nice writing and description and environment i think it's a great story so 20 out of 25 for me okay you, you said it pretty you said it well there um the principles i found that um even though they had minimal, uh, he had a kind of, you know, that he didn't quite crack the case, so to speak. I think in the end, he did put a, a major dent into the operations of the counterfeit gang. And I think he just enjoyed just solving the case. But also remember, too, is that Holmes was presented this case by Watson. So he just basically heard the guy's story, put these things together and then went and just let it let it all up. So he just followed the he just did his deductions and followed them through. And that and and it and it's not his fault that the place burned down. Like there's nothing that could have done that was done before. So he really has no real regret. And besides, Hatherley is still alive. This operation is decimated, and uh, you know I'm sure the Scotland Yard is going to be looking for them. So in many ways, um, it was a fortunate situation. But I don't think Holmes had so much investment in it to consider it a, a lost case. You know. And uh, I do like his bit of mirth at the end. I like Watson's agency uh, in this storyline in particular of him bringing this case of him of him you know being 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 his physician self and you know cleaning up the wound and bringing and bringing this to his friend Sherlock and and involving in the case and you know I like I like the agency of the two characters in, in here. It wasn't great or fantastic you know compared to other stories, so, but I think it earns a solid three point five. Okay. Investigation. I like the setup of the of the narrative itself. I like the we get sort of kind of like the pre credits teaser, you know, with Watson, you know, getting woke up, and then there's this guy in his house, and uh, he's lost his thumb, and then and then he, you know what I mean. So that was kind of a great kind of uh, setup for the narrative, and then he tells the story like because we're always wondering what 
how did this guy lose his thumb? Like, what happened? And he's and even in the interview when he talks about Stark and talks about the hydraulic press and all this sort of stuff, I'm going. So does he escape through the hydraulic press and and his thumb got crushed when he was escaping from it? Like, I was really curious to see how he lost his thumb. You know what I mean? Like, would it be something as as like crazy as that? Like a hydraulic press crushing it and he rips it out and that's how he manages to escape somehow? Or is it going to be sort of like uh, I don't know, like uh, some scenario where like uh, he gets uh, while while escaping from the house, he uh, while he passed out in a garden, like or something. Or there could be many different ways of how he could have lost the uh, the uh, thumb. And I was curious to see where the narrative was going in that respect. So that kind of had me intrigued. You know, the minor thing of thumb, I know, but it had me intrigued because of the of the of the strength of the writing itself. Um, but as it leads into the investigation, Holmes pointing out the horses and and the trip that they made, and just the whole brilliance of the operation that Stark had going there, and and the setup of the operation, and how and you understood why it was so long-standing. It felt a very lived-in scenario, and uh, yeah, the gothic, um, ten, you know, the the, the the gothic visuals of the of the house at the end of nowhere, the like the the. the cab ride in the dark all the way like it's almost like it's being it was like jonathan harker going to dracula's castle you know uh, there was just some great visual um play play there and going into the hydraulic press and that whole setup and the diabolical nature of it uh it was just really really like grand grignol kind of stuff so moving forward from there uh, and then and the dean even though they got away, I think it worked out as a whole. So I give the narrative uh, a 4.5, uh, or sorry, the investigation, 4.5. Uh, moving on to the perpetrators, Lysander Stark was basically everything that I think Grimsky Rylock could have been, and I thought he was a much more convincing villain and a much fleshed-out v- villain than um, than, uh, than uh, Grimsby Rylock was. So I give uh, I give the perpetrators and Ferguson is kind of interesting in his own way. He was wasn't there a lot, but he was suggestive of his character uh, as a perpetrator. And you can also throw Elise in as being as a perpetrator as well. They seem very interesting characters, and I wanted to learn more about them. So that was definitely well done by the author. So I give the perpetrators uh, four point five as well. Uh, third, uh, going on to the environment, uh, environment was was the strong thing in here. I don't think the environment uh, aspects was as strong as it was in the previous story. Um, just because there was, there was things about the grounds that, I guess, that Stoke Moran, that really kind of caught me. But um, now that you mentioned, you know, like the hydraulic press and the Edgar Allan Poe atmosphere, I'm, I'm seeing more of a horror story, more so now, now than just kind of like uh, an investigation told through a different perspective. So I'm going to... I would say I'd probably alter my uh, grade for the um, environment to uh, 4.5. Um as for the supporting cast, as I mentioned, uh, we, even though they were perpetrators, I think they all work good as a whole as supporting cast as well. So I give the supporting cast, you know, a solid 3.5, even though more of them were perpetrators. Uh, 3.5 is my final thing for the supporting cast. All right. Well, that's interesting. We started this conversation with you saying I like the story more than you. But in terms of scoring, you went super uh, sugary and generous there. And you came out with uh, let's see nine thirteen five. You, I think you got me on. I think you got me on the environs. 
in, in that respect. Yeah, but, you know, because when you when you hear the perspective of other people, um, it makes you, you know, look back at what you thought about it and then how you could possibly misinterpreted things. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, like the light switch turns on. Yeah. And you realize, well, oh, yeah, of course. This is also, this... And then you think about things in a different light, you know, and, and how they're presented and stuff. And then you realize, you know what, uh, there was something more, something about that that really intrigued me and I couldn't put my finger on it. And now that's just it. You hit it exactly. And that excites me more, and that kind of increases my enjoyment, and thus my score. Yeah, well, that's cool. That's one of the good things about our discussions, right? Um, but I also think it says something about us. Like, maybe you're just, you know, uh, you're just a little more generous with your numbers than I am, and that's cool. Because um, I think that's consistent. I think there's a consistency there. Oh, there's um, a consistency, but I, I also, you know, I consider my, my numbers seriously as, as you do in, in, in that respect. Perhaps I'm not I saying I'm not of, saying you don't. I'm not saying you don't. Yeah. For a Perhaps second, I have a little more. I have a little more of an of an elasticity to them. Maybe, um, maybe. I just mean that you have a tendency to maybe disregard the lower numbers in, and put more agency in the threes, the fours, and what that means to your scoring. You know, because yeah, the truth is, all of these stories are well written, and very few of them are going to reach twos or ones. Yeah, um, twos are rare. Twos are rare. I, two, three, like three to four point five is usually my average for a lot of these things. Yeah. Well, I, I should point out, you know, once again, we've managed to reach the end of uh, near the end of an episode, and we haven't really done as much uh, quoting from the text as we would have liked to. Uh, it might be an idea to, you know, to reconsider maybe just doing two stories. But I think three is a good pace if we if we can tighten up our plot summaries and, and, and do more quoting from the stories. And I think maybe that's the way to do it. But we're, we're getting to the end of these short stories anyway. What are the next three that we're looking at, Josh? Uh, the next three, I believe the next case, the next one is The Adventure of the Noble Bachelor. Okay. And then we have The Adventure of the Barrel Coronet. And then The Adventure of the Copper Beaches. Oh, sounds exciting. Um, yeah, and, and then after that, we move on to the memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Okay, cool. Well, look, the, um, the the track that I've got set aside, i got a couple of different tracks set aside for um, this particular story, The Engineer's Thumb. Are you familiar with a composer named Barry Gray? Barry Gray? He does yeah. not ring a bell. Well, Barry Gray is a composer who put tunes to the sort of animated film, uh, animated shows like Stingray, Thunderbirds, Captain Scarlet, Fireball XL5, all those types oh, the, of shows. Oh, the, the, uh, the super marination shows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's done some really good work, actually. I was surprised. He's very, I, I, I recall the music in those shows. They're very uh, Barry-esque, actually. Well, some of them are. Uh, some, I mean, they're very of their time. But um, a CD was lent to me by uh, Mike Grierson, who's a cleaner at my school. He's a huge music fan. He's into all kinds of stuff, particularly 60s, 50s, 70s stuff. But he loves all kinds of different music. And he lent me this knowing that, you know, I like film music and television music. This is uh, uh, a cue by Barry Gray called The Trip, and it's from uh, uh, the episode of, oh, I want to say Joe, no, the UFO, I think, yeah, it's an episode that he did called, a show called The UFO, uh, way back when, in in the late 60s. Anyway, the reason I've selected it is because I kind of felt like there's a bit of horror, a little bit of karma revenge for our young consultant engineer here. I hope you enjoy it. Just two minutes long, we'll let it play. This is for you, Victor. thinking about not just Victor but uh, we're also thinking about Holmes and Watson and their trip up to visit this home I think it sets a groove feel free to dance
watch something like you would hear like in an episode of The Avengers. Like this is um, Mr. Steed and Mrs. Peel, you know, going on to to, to the uh, treacherous uh, lair. incidental music there by Barry Gray. I'll just let it play Very, on the background uh, as, we say as well. Wells. Well, look, buddy, um, these two and a half hours go quick, don't they? They do. They really do. But I was going to say that um, um, the music also reminds me of, of, of like the music of Lalo Schifrin, you know, like for Bullet yeah. or for Mission Impossible, where it has that like late 60s vibe to it, you know? Uh, the guitar, the organ. Um, the music kind of was also reminiscent of you know, uh, you know, Steed and Mrs. Peel, you know, ch- checking out the uh, the evil lair of the counterfeiters, you know, themselves hmm. that they were on this case. It's all of that era, and yeah. I, I recommend you, got- you check out his check out his music, Barry Gray. I think he's uh, he certainly was. I didn't know much about him, uh, but I've learned a bit since uh, collecting or picking up the CD. He's he's quite cool. He's got got some good stuff there for sure. Anyway, look, buddy, that's, it's, it's, uh, that's, it's been that's fun. That's the Bowman's recommendation for uh, musical Bowman's scores. Recommendation, yeah. Um, let's just uh, do a little review here before finishing off. Engineer's Thumb, I went 20 out of 25, one of my highest scores. You topped me by a half point at 20, 25. Uh, our pipe score for Speckled Band, uh, didn't rate it as much. It went 15 and a half, uh, though there are some great things in it. Uh, 17 and a half for yourself. I hit an 18 for the blue carbuncle, and you were at a 19. And so, yeah, this is this is really interesting, you know. I'm yet to score higher on a story than you. <laughs> I thought maybe today would have been the day with the uh, engineer's thumb, but you slid in there with a top score. Hmm. It's hard to say what, the, what, what that one might be. Who knows? Who knows? And maybe it won't happen, but uh, we certainly... Maybe the Hound of the Baskervilles. Maybe. We'll see. Maybe not. Um, yeah. we got we got three more short stories to hit first before we leave the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. So, yeah, here we are, 6th of May. Um, we'll go away and do some more reading and come back in about a month's time and we'll uh, flesh out the last of these stories. Yeah, we'll start out with the Noble Bachelor and then go into the Barrel Coronet and then into the Copper Beaches, whatever that might be. Excellent. And look, buddy, uh, as, a, as a farewell tune, um, because all of these stories have to do with money in some capacity, whether it's the counterfeiting of money, whether it's looking to get money out of your daughter's uh, inheritance, or whether it's a case of trying to get money from stealing a gem. Uh, Money, thievery seems to be, and deception, seems to be a big part of what's going on here in Arthur Conan Doyle's world. And so I thought it would be particularly fitting to end with one of the greatest tunes about money ever written and that is money talks by rick james you have any uh, do you have any objections to this great 80s classic no man cocaine is a hell of a drug though cocaine's a hell of a drug 
Okay, pal. Well, from the, me over here in Scotland, it's farewell. Farewell. And, and adieu, and my spare Spanish lady. And it's down to Rick James to uh, tell <laughs> us tell us how money talks. Thank you.